Okay, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in this rotating globe. Welcome to another <clears throat> intriguingly bizarre edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when literally anything can happen and your clocks freeze. Anyway, actually, speaking of freezing, here it's uh, in the upper 20s in the land of enchantment, and this studio is not very warm. So if you hear kind of strange noises in the background, those are probably the fans of the heaters that will keep us warm for the next three hours as we take a journey into something really puzzling, perplexing, and equally fascinating, which is what the heck is going on between Russia and Ukraine? And we have the best person I can think of uh, with us tonight to answer this question from the wilds of Idaho, uh, historian and uh, University of Idaho um, uh, alum, uh, Dr. Richard Spence. And so we're going to spend the next uh, three hours, give or take, delving into the background, the really uh, arcane but fascinating background to what's currently going on. And I know there are a number of perceptions as to what is going on. So uh, we will get to that momentarily. At the, at the initial part of the show, for those of you who are new to the other side of midnight, and I know we have a lot of new listeners, I can tell by the numbers. Uh, let me take you through what we normally do here. Um, if you're listening on something that is not a computer, what you want to do is to uh, find our URL, the other side of midnight.com. Click on that. You will then see tonight's banner. Why is Putin threatening Ukraine for Sunday, January 30th, 2022? Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page of something we call Radio with Pictures. Um, I really abhor videos. That's why I will never permit a live television camera here in the studio. I mean, many years ago, Art said, why don't you put it in a camera? He'd just gotten his camera. And I said, are you kidding? Because anyway, radio is about sound, the audio, the background, the, the word pictures. Now, what we've added to that classic idea of radio is something we call radio with pictures, which I freely admit I stole from a uh, television, uh, television, a film development company that we actually almost did a movie with, RKO. Um, Radio with pictures, I borrowed freely from their uh, uh, logo and moniker. And so we have a section called Radio with pictures. If you, once you're on the um, guest page, right under the banner on the guest page at the top, you'll see a little bunch of print that says guest page fast links to items and tonight it's uh, me Richard and uh, Dr. Spence so click on my name that will take you to radio with pictures and there are a couple of three news items I want to go over quickly before we bring in uh, Dr. Spence item number one now we've been doing this for the last oh, month or so since Christmas when the Webb Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, was successfully launched from French Guiana in South America at the crack of dawn on Christmas morning, and everything worked in terms of the launch. In fact, the Ariane 5 was so precise 
that it saved the Webb telescope itself enough onboard mid-correction fuel that the life of the telescope, barring any unforeseen electronic problems, is now judged to be on the order of 20 years. And that's without refueling. And of course, that's without Elon Musk, because you know at some point, um, if there are problems, that Musk will mount a mission with the Starship to basically go out a million miles away from Earth at the so-called L2 point, which is a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun, where Webb will be gently orbiting in a very large halo orbit, bigger than the moon's orbit around the Earth in a period of about a month. I keep meaning to look up the precise time, and I keep forgetting. So what does all this have to do with item number one? This is a direct link to the web blog from NASA, and it updates, uh, it used to update every day and sometimes a couple times a day as they were going through the very, 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 very complicated deployment process. I mean, this thing was a rule Goldberg gadget just waiting to fail. And as you will see when you read the uh, 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 post from the head of the web team, in fact, uh, technically it is the um, um, web project manager, Bill Oakes, he has some very interesting thoughts about the incredibly, in fact, unbelievably, brilliantly, astoundingly, miraculously, can they put a few more leads in there? Deployment of the whole damn thing. Nothing failed. Everything is working, except now they have to align the 18 separate sub-mirrors into the one large super primary mirror of the telescope itself, the so-called primary mirror, which is almost 22 feet in diameter. Can you imagine a parabolic sheet of glass, 22 feet? That's bigger than my living room. Anyway, um, that's going to go on for the next two or three months, aligning each of the separate mirrors, focusing them precisely <clears throat> to literally nanometer precision. They've tested all the motors, all the actuators, everything is working in the ultra-cold conditions on the night side of the tennis court-sized sun shield they deployed a couple weeks ago. And we're just waiting for all that alignment to be completed like about uh, late, late spring. Um, and then we will get the first of what should be absolutely images. So if you want to kind of follow along with what Webb is doing and how it's going to basically revolutionize again, like Hubble did, our understanding of this extraordinary universe that we inhabit here in 3D. Um, go to that, the James Webb Space Telescope blog, and you will read tonight, the Webb team looks back on a successful series of astonishing deployments. Item number two right under that is a kind of a basic uh, where is web, including a new feature that NASA has, has uh, added, which is a three-dimensional simulation of the solar system, the Earth-Moon system, and Hubbs halo orbit around the L2 position. And I saw a, a kind of a quirky uh, news item the other day 
saying uh, something like, how can Webb orbit nothing? Because, of course, there's nothing really at the L2 point. It's a balance of forces. And this article went into great detail, as does the Webb team, about how you basically orbit in space nothing. Only works if you're in a two-body system with five so-called Lagrange points figured out centuries ago by a French mathematician named Lagrange. Item number three. I mean, this is the subject of tonight. This is a recent story from the Washington Post. It's just kind of an overview of the current Russian-Ukrainian standoff with uh, Putin massing something like 130,000 troops at last count and countless numbers of tanks and artillery and everything else you need for a major land war, which has got a lot of people very, very upset and apprehensive and downright fearful. Then there's the other side, which says this is all a big uh, ado about nothing. Well, the way to cut through the morass, because, of course, these days, you know, you don't just have two sides. You have 15 sides to every story. And even if people agree on the same basic facts, they come to totally different conclusions, um, which, of course, is why I included item number four, because this is a <clears throat> recent news story uh, last uh, day or two from the New York Post to kind of balance politically the Washington Post. And there you will see some really interesting satellite images uh, of this extraordinary buildup of military power and hardware and might on the border of Ukraine. Now, some people are quibbling and saying, well, 20 miles isn't exactly on the border. Heck, I can go 20 miles in 20 minutes. Um, So with this kind of deployment, which in the good old days, we would not have known about. I mean, this is all now kind of open and transparent to the world because of the uh, you know, existence of satellite reconnaissance technology. Remember, well, most of you probably don't remember, but way, 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 way back when I was a kid growing up, then President Eisenhower in the 1950s, in the late 50s, uh, proposed something to then uh, Russian um, Premier uh, Khrushchev, which was something called an open skies policy because the Kennedy administration a couple years later came into existence claiming there was a huge missile gap between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union with the Soviet Union clearly the winner. So we had to catch up. And that was one of the planks of his platform, the Democratic Party platform, which led to his uh, ultimately successfully winning the presidency, the idea that we were behind the Russians in military hardware, specifically long-range rockets. Um, That is an example of how an entire presidential election turned on ignorance. Because it turned out after the election, when um, things like Project Corona, which was the first spy satellite built by the Air Force and the CIA and the RAND Corporation went into orbit and took photographs of the Soviet Union that um, the Russians were not happy with, Uh, it turned out there was no missile gap. In fact, the Russians were behind us in the deployment of intercontinental ballistic missiles. So what has happened in the last 50, 60 years is that we've had this spy in the sky 
on all sides, able to look down at any piece of real estate owners within minutes, and now relay in real time stunning high-resolution imagery from hundreds of miles up to where literally they can read the license plates if someone holds a license plate, you know, facing straight up. And with that kind of extraordinary technology, that transparency, it's very obvious on all the satellite imagery, not only from national um, satellite systems like, uh, you know, the National Reconnaissance Office in the United States, but from private enterprise, from private corporations, which now have satellites which are infinitely better than the original Project Corona spacecraft back in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, These systems are all reporting the same thing, that there is this extraordinary deployment of military personnel and hardware and trucks and things including, you know, supplies of blood for transfusions if and when a bloody invasion of Ukraine takes place. So there can be no dispute of the reality of the deployment by Putin of all this hardware. The question is, what is he planning to do with it? And that is going to be the focus of our discussion tonight. The background to this contretemps between Russia and Ukraine with someone who I could not think of a better person to reach out, which I did, and ask, which I did. And so tonight we're going to be taking a tour de force journey back in time through the beginnings of this uh, standoff between this very large nation, 145 million people, and a very large military, and a relatively tiny nation on its border with something like 45 million Ukrainians and with almost no military. And we're going to find out why is everybody up in arms, literally, about the potential for the biggest land invasion of another country uh, in Europe since World War II. And with that, let me go directly to uh, uh, my guest background. You've heard him on the show many, many times. I kind of joke sometimes that he is our resident historian, because I guess he is. Uh, Dr. Spence is a professor of history at the University of Idaho. Um, His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works are legion. You can read them there on the website. And so without further ado, um, let me open up the channel and welcome Rick Spence back to the microphones here at the other side of midnight. So enlighten us. How far back in time does this bizarre confrontation extend? Well, first, good evening to you, Richard, and to to everybody else who's out there. So how far back does it go? I mean, if we don't want to take it back to protoplasmic slime. um, (laughs) Well. uh, Is that one of your subtitles, History of Protoplasmic Slime? Well, I I would always joke with it. I I have to point out here that I am am a professor emeritus at the University of I retired. Yeah, but you know, like in the CIA, they say retired CIA. They're never retired. And you're not a retired yeah, I'm re- historian. I'm, I'm retired. Yeah, I'm not a retired historian, but I am a retired professor of history. But okay. That's, okay. That's a matter of semantics, uh, which means I don't work for them anymore, and they don't pay me. So there we go. Ah, okay. Um, so how far do we want to take this back? Well, let's go back. If you look at my map, 
I, I sent over, you know, you're asking for things, and I sent a bunch of maps. I could have gone crazy and sent more maps, but I, I tried to keep them down because there's an infinite number of maps, and I love maps. Uh, me too. Me too. So I was, she, hang on, hang on. Let me tell the new folks right. how to find them. Go to the other okay. side of midnight.com. Click on the banner that takes you to the guest page. Under that banner, you will see fast links to items Richard and Spence. Very interesting way to put that. Click on Spence. That will take you to Rick's section, Dr. Spence's section. And item number one, it says Kivan, Russia. A very nice map. You click on it, it gets very big. So we can see great detail. Okay. So we'll start with this map because this this takes us back as far as we need to go towards the direction of protoplasmic slime. It takes (laughs) us back to when a Russia didn't exist. There was at this point no real city of Moscow and in which Kiev, which is today the capital of a country which is called Ukraine, which we'll explain what that means and why it's not the Ukraine, but in which Kiev was the nominal capital of something which, as this map says, was called Kievan Rus. Not Russia, not Russia, just Kievan Rus. And this map dates to around, you know, it's about the year 1000. So... What is Kievan Rus, and how did both modern Russia and modern Ukraine come out of that? And what you had, you can notice on the map here, there are different colored areas, sort of blobs, and most of these show different major principalities. So one thing to keep, keep in mind is that Kievan Rus wasn't really a kingdom, and it wasn't really an empire. It was more a kind of business concern more than anything else, but they're At various times, strong leaders emerged, and they were able to impose their control over this whole area, and which, again, only encompasses a small part of, really, it doesn't even encompass most of what is Ukraine today, and only a very small part of what is Russia, but this is where the whole thing comes from. This is the egg that everything else comes from. So... What had happened a little earlier in this is that you'd had in this region, it was inhabited by a variety of warring Slavic tribes. Slavs are, you know, today Slavs encompass everything from Russians and Ukrainians. They are Slavs. They are Eastern Slavs. And then so are Poles and Slovaks and Czechs and Serbs and Croats, etc. They come in different varieties, but they all speak related languages. In the same sense that, let's say, Germans, Norwegians, Swedes, and Danes speak related Germanic or Nordic languages, or even, even the English do in that case. doesn't mean they're the same people, but it means they have a certain relationship to each other. So this large area had been, for, you know, for untold centuries prior to that, had been inhabited by you know, pretty much a sort of standard warring tribes. And what had happened about 200 years before this map, around 800 A.D., is that the area began to coalesce. That is, you know, it's one of the things to do is that a lot of disparate things begin to coalesce into something a bit more solid. And the real center of that, if you, if you look at the map, if you look towards the north of this kind of pinkish area, you'll see a town called Novgorod. That just means new town which, I mean, it was a new town at one point. Mm-hmm. And then if you go further down, down, you notice every, well, this area is sort of surrounded with a red line, and if you follow it down, especially along this large river, you'll see that towards the south, a long way to the south, is the city of Kiev. 
So those were the two most important cities in that area. And, and what happened is that around 800, 850, a, a fellow came along uh, by the name of Rurik. A, and Rurik, interestingly enough, was not from this area at all. Rurik was a Viking. Oh, sweet. <laughs> he, came from, he came from, well, probably from Sweden, as much as anyone can tell. And Rurik showed up because among these wars between the local tribes, one of the things that outsiders, you know, outside powers, let's say, or interests were coming in to try to leverage things in their direction. So being a Viking, Rurik and some of his friends saw advantages here and basically plied their military trade to help one tribe against another. And eventually Rurik sort of comes out on top of this. Rurik becomes, again, not a king, not an emperor, but he becomes, uh, maybe the best way to describe it, he becomes the biggest drug dealer, if you imagine that. He becomes the Pablo Escobar of this region. Oh, he's, he, he's a warlord. He's a warlord. He makes himself the toughest warlord. Okay, let me ask kills. let me ask one of yeah. my classic dumb questions. This is twelve hundred years ago. We can't mm-hmm. believe a New York Times story from three days ago. How do we know any of this is true? Well, you don't. <laughs> you simply go by remember, long before anything was written down, everything was transmitted by to mouth. Which is a very imperfect way of doing it. Or in, but, in, 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 in song and chronicle and bards and that but, kind you of know, I mean, well, you can sing it, which is just, you know, saying it in, you know, with, with a melody attached to it. But it comes down to there, – there are records that record – but there are interesting questions about it. So, for instance, while it seems to be generally agreed that Rurik was a Viking, that he was a Norse adventurer who came into this area, that is, he wasn't a local, exactly where he came from – isn't clear at all. Hmm. So the other thing that isn't clear is this term Rus, because no one can agree what that actually refers to. So well, after isn't it, isn't it, comes along, isn't it kind of related to red? The, uh, the actual, no, and, the, it, and it's not, and, the, and none of these tribes are called the Rus. They're, they're not called that. Oh. And so one of the reasons why people think that Rurik was from what is now Sweden is that there was an area in early medieval Sweden that was referred to as Rus. So one idea is that he and his men who came with him were the actual Rus, not the locals. But then somehow this term stuck and then began to apply to other people. So... The people who sort of first talk about encountering the Rus are the Byzantines, which are further south. So again, I think, let's see how far down this map goes. Well, this map only goes down, you can see the Black Sea. But if you basically sail down the river, if you were an enterprising Viking and uh, with your, your warriors, and you got to the mouth of the Dnieper River, and your ships were there, and you went across the Black Sea, not too far was the great Byzantine capital, the Eastern Rome, Constantinople, one of the richest cities in the world at that time. And, you know, being Vikings, you're just not going to be able to resist the possibility of sacking the richest city in the world. <laughs> of course not. So as, mm. as soon as this area, we're as saying soon as nice this things, region... You understand we're saying nice things about my ancestors, right? Well, you know, they did what they did. They were enterprising. Okay, that's, that's how you know. Andrew, I love that enterprise. Okay, go ahead. Okay, they always observe. You remember the most important thing to remember in this type of thing is always loot before you burn. Absolutely. So, mm. um, so 
Rurik first established himself as a kind of warlord in Novgorod, and then he and his descendants, he married in to the locals, he established a kind of dynasty, and he and his descendants, or his descendants, would eventually become nominally the kind of rulers of this loose-knit, loose always kind of fragile coalition, but the way in which you often held people together was in directing their energies against some other enemy. And... That And the richest prize was Constantinople. So it's the Byzantines who wake up one morning and find out that there's a whole bunch of guys in boats who've come across the Black Sea and are assaulting the walls of Constantinople. <laughs> and and their annals are what refer to these people as the Rus. Ah. It, it's not even clear – and it's not clear why they called them that. So one of the arguments is that since the Vikings at this point were generally the military leaders – that the Byzantines were talking about the guys in control, you know, the ones you generally talk to. Right. But it, it, but it's, it's led to a constant debate about it. But, you know, if you're talking about the things that you don't know, Rus is then subsequently the origin, is the term from which Russia or Russia comes from, and no one can tell you exactly what the origin of that was or who it was referring to. So See, there's a lot of, of things that we... One of the reasons I wanted to ask this is because most people, when they think of history and they read books, you know, they think that it's all just, you guys found it somewhere. It's like, it's like, it, 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 it's real. I want people to understand how incredibly fragmentary and hard your job is, particularly 1,200 years ago. Well, then try going back, you know, 12,000 years exactly. ago or 5,000. The further back you go, the, the, the iffier all information becomes and the less there is of it. And it really becomes increasingly vague. But so, no, there is no giant. This is, you know, one of the things I'd often point out to students was that, you know, people tend to think of history is easy because it's all in a book. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> has everything you would need to know about it. Yep. And it's not. Um, what you've got, what, what history is constructed of, history is just a story or it's a series of stories, and you've, you've got a few facts. So one of the things that we, in this case, that we can be as sure of as you can be as sure of anything is that Rurik was a real person, and he lived sometime between about eight and 900, and he was Norse or a Viking who came into this area from the outside, and that he was an important military and economic force in, in uniting things. And, and, and with a hell of an ability to organize. Uh, you know, maybe he got lucky. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's never underestimate that. You know, to a certain degree, you're just in the right place at the right time. So, so what happened in this case is that this Rurik got the ball rolling, and he was, and he and his descendants for the next couple of centuries up into this period were were able to more or less unify. I tell you what, let's hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. What I'm going to be doing in the breaks is playing music, hopefully equitably, from Russia and from Ukraine. And let's see if you recognize this one. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, Russian historian, among many other things and talents. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight, and we shall return. 
objective from the beginning, uh, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict, very, yeah. very harsh. <laughs> and most people failed to, to realize the, uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen is more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. And I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. everyone on this Sunday night, January 30th, 2022. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Idaho. I still think it's like, you know, once an historian, always an historian, even if you're not attached to 
that institution anymore. Anyway, um, Rick, um, let's pick up where we left off in the country of Rus. Did anybody ever bother to go back to Sweden and find out what, what Rus means in Swedish? Uh, it's the closest that I know anybody is, was the name of a, of a county or an area. But there seems to be some disagreement as to exactly where that was. But nobody thought, so, you know, what the heck is the underlying meaning? Because all names ultimately trace down to other things, like more fundamental substantive things. Well, it was named after something or somebody. Wow. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, where that comes from is – now, th- there's, there's a counter argument to that the Rus is an area in Sweden, and there are other people who argue that, no, it actually does refer to some area – in what would later be, you know, in, in this Eastern Slavic area, or reserves, it refers to some people there, but uh, nobody has ever definitively identified who that was. Okay, as long as we're on the subject of digressions, <clears throat> yeah. where did the term Rodina come from? Rodina? Yeah. In the Hunt oh, for Red October. Mother, motherland, Rodina. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Uh, that's related to, the root word there is, is, is Rod. Um, which is which can refer to family. It's similar to our word for root. Ah, I see. Okay. All right. So okay. that would end refer of, to end of digression. <clears throat> Please yeah, continue. Okay. Right. Well, anyway, so Rurik got this whole thing. You know, Rurik the Viking got the whole thing going, and and what eventually this Kievan Rus. The, the term we historians use for this, or some of us do, is that we don't call it a country, we don't call it a kingdom, we call it a polity. Oh, which means that there was, you know, it, it, on and off, there's one strong man in control. But it's, I think it's, it's much like the rest of medieval Europe. You know, you essentially had the, uh, you know, the, the biggest drug dealer, the toughest guy around, the one who had the largest army, uh, and who could intimidate or buy off everybody else. That's what you did. You either militarily intimidated them uh, or killed them, or you you bought them off. And what Rurik and his descendants did, those who were successful, is that they were able to to make it profitable for the other lesser warlords in this area to cooperate. And therefore, one of the things that Kievan Rus, this polity, this we'll call it this kind of semi-demi-pseudo-state, was that it was based on trade, internal trade and external trade. So... When the Rus, whoever exactly they were, decided that they couldn't conquer Constantinople and the Byzantines, they began trading with them. And what they began to control was this trade route that goods flowed all the way across Eurasia, all the way from China to Constantinople. Constantinople was a huge – it was a city – probably at least of half a million inhabitants at that time. Well, it was an incredible crossroads. Right. And and so goods came in from the east – and the the Rus connected with this, and they then carried this trade up the rivers, up the Dnieper and other rivers, into the Baltic and just across northern Europe. So that's one of the things that people often misunderstand about the Vikings. Um, you know, the Vikings, by the way, aren't an ethnic group. It's a job description. Ah. <laughs> a, a, Vi- a Viking, a Vi- Vikings weren't an ethnicity. It, it basically, you were essentially a pirate. 
So think of it that way. Okay. Uh, a Viking was any sort of Norse man who joined with others and went off adventuring abroad. And that could mean loot and pillage, but it could also mean trade. Or it so could be an exploration like Eric the Red in the colonies in the, in, in the New World, North America, yeah. and all that. But, all of the, but those colonies are economic enterprises. Exactly. That's, that's where you're going there. And you're always trying to set up trade. You're trying to set up something that you can make money off of. So all of this is based upon trade. And that's what eventually made Kiev, down in the south, the most important city. Mm. And the thing you'll note again, if you look at this map, there's a, this red line, which looks like it's a border. And I want to emphasize there were no such thing as real borders in those days. But... Kiev sort of sat towards the southern part of this area along the biggest river, the main trade route, a river called the Dnieper River. D-N-E-P-R is the way it's generally spelled. Dnieper, if you want to sound, if you want to anglicize it. And what's geographically important about that is that Kiev sat sort of on the border, on the edge of the forested area and the open plains to the south. So as you went south towards the Black Sea, forest gave way to open steppe. So by the time you get down to the coast of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, uh, those are the areas that for centuries were known as the wild plains. Now these are areas that later... Well, basically they're kind of like the American prairie. Very much like the American prairie. They were, they were a large sea of grass. And, and, one of the, and that's why they grew wheat so well later on. Say, this would be the, the Black Earth region. An incredible breadbasket, yes. Okay. But, keep, but they're not an incredible breadbasket really until the 1700s because they're never systematically cultivated because they are the wild plains and they were the general highway and haunt of a variety of nomadic peoples. So you've got the names of some of them. There were people like the Pechenegs, the Kumans, the Sarmatians, the Sumerians. You know, later on, the Mongols and the Tatars will show up. But there's always, once, once you got out into the wild plains, these were areas that were basically controlled by nomadic herding peoples. And, and one of the things that nomadic peoples do is that they don't farm land they farm animals and they need land for food and there's you know when they come across a a large grassy area they have no interest in growing crops on it they want that for their herds so the thing about you know nomads is they can be kind of pesky and they can raid and they can be a little ornery when you try to send trading ships down along the rivers and so there was always along this sort of border area there was a kind of constant warfare that took place and a warfare between the more settled, the sort of, you know, eventually the Rus, as we'll call them, settled into cities and towns, and were basically agriculturalists. But on the steppes, you had nomads who wanted no real part in that and were generally inclined to raid into the settled areas. So this is how you begin to get the term for this area, south of Kiev, sort of along to the north of this steppe highway of the Wild Plains. That became the borderlands. And that's where we get the term Ukraina. Ah. So Ukraine is an anglicization of Ukraina, which is roughly the closest term that we would come up for it, is the borderlands. Now, that also gets us to this question as to whether it's Ukraine 
or the Ukraine. <laughs> yes. And this basically has to do with the diff- simply the differences between English and Slavic languages uh, like Ukrainian or Russian. And in Slavic languages, certainly in East Slavic languages, there's no definite article. You don't have any articles. There's no the or a. Those simply aren't used. They don't exist. They don't know what they are. They make absolutely no sense to them. Hmm. Okay, they're seen as utterly unnecessary. Now, we, on the other hand, in, in English, any area which is named after a kind of geographical feature or, or any, any sort of area or country in many ways that takes its name from the geography is, has the put in front of it. So like the Netherlands or the Philippines. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can talk about the Philippine Islands. Uh, but generally we'll do that because we're, we're talking somehow it's defined by the geography. So the same thing is that the borderlands, that, that's what makes sense in English. So there Well, we also say it right here, the United States. The United States. So the borderlands is simply the way that we would translate Ukraina. That, that's that's the, the rough idea. Ah. It's the same sort of idea, but... In Ukrainian or Russian, there's no definite article, so there's no, so it's simply borderlands. And I guess the question then comes up: How do they tell what borderlands they're talking about? Actually, it's pretty easy. It's right there in front of you, generally. <laughs> so, um, well, but between Kiev and the, and the Black Sea. Yeah, but, but keep in mind this: the, the line between Kiev sort of set on the edge to the north of Kiev. Land is is fairly forested, and to the south, it, it becomes more and more open. So Kiev was important, is that that's where all the goods, all the furs and honey and slaves, by the way, that was a big trade item at this time, that were brought and collected down, were all gathered together, and they were organized into big convoys, big river convoys, that then had military escorts, would fight their way down through the river, you know, maybe they'd make pacts with some of the nomadic tribes on and off. You know, the situation was always changing diplomatically. But that's how this whole area came in. So the important thing here is that the subsequent term Ukraine, or the Ukraine, if you want to anglicize it, doesn't refer to a people. It's like Ruth. It, there's, there's no people. There's no tribe. There's no ethnicity. It simply refers to a basic geographical fact of a borderland between two groups. Hmm. A buffer zone. A buffer zone. A kind of movable, hostile frontier, I guess is one of the okay. ways that you could, uh, you could think of it. So that's what we're eventually talking about. And, and the definition of exactly where that border was changes over the centuries. Well, in, in, uh, hang on. In modern parlance, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing on that, you know, New Yorker cover that I used to see yeah. when I go to restaurants. You know, there was this place called New York, and then there was this sliver, and then there was this place called Los Angeles, and in between is flyover country, right? Mm-hmm. Ukraine was flyover country. It was, it was wasteland. It was out there. Well, it was simply an area that, that, that really wasn't – it was it was dominated and and up until and up until really the time of the American Revolution, 
up really until the 1780s. It will not be until then that the last nomads are essentially tamed in that area, and that area is then settled and brought under systematic cult. So this 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 frontier, this concept of a kind of borderline between settled, between agricultural, settled civilization and nomadic tribes, that, that, will, that will persist for centuries. But that's all the term actually means, and it never actually clearly, it doesn't define a country or it doesn't define a people. It's just a name to an area that later sort of stuck. Hmm. Now, the other thing that happened in this Kievan period that's important is that in 988, here's an exact year for it, and we know the year it happened because lots of people wrote it down. Uh, and one of these descendants of Rurik, or one of the other strongmen, a fellow by the name of Vladimir the Saint. Now, guess what he's going to be called the Saint? <laughs> Vladimir the Saint converted Rus from paganism to Christianity. Ah. But he converted it to Orthodox, Eastern, Byzantine Christianity, not to Roman Catholic Christianity. Well, for obvious reasons, I would imagine. Well, you know, they did, you know, they did a lot more business with the Byzantines. That, that's where the cultural influence came from. Mm-hmm. So the Byzantines began, and that's, that's the Christianity, that's where the missionaries came from, that came into the area. But Vladimir the Saint in 988, nominally, you know, it's gonna, you know, there were still a lot of pagan holdouts for a couple of centuries or so, but he's the fellow who then essentially created a, and this was another unifying factor, because what that did, is that it then created a single religious authority throughout this area, which the head of this polity or state was also nominally the head of. So you had a church now to sort of enforce loyalty and obedience. But that was the religion that spread all over this area, that spread from Novgorod all the way down to Kiev, all the way over to the borders of Poland, all the way out to the edges of wherever these borderlands and the and the nomadic frontier was. So if we look at things in the year 1000, the, the sort of Rus or lands uh, of the Eastern Slavs that this portrays is that remember at this point, there is no Russia, there is no Ukraine. There is single quasi political and economic state under a single religion. Now, yeah, I, that doesn't mean that everybody spoke a language in one form or under the same way. I mean, there must have been innumerable different dialects between one place or another. But th- this is where all everything comes from. And, and the point is that in the beginning, there was no distinction between the two. And in fact, one of the things that both modern Ukrainians and modern Russians both recognize is that this Kievan Rus state or polity is the origin of everything else that we come out of that area, that they share a common origin. Okay. So how did things change from there? How did we get to the further development of these things? Well, if we go down to map two, you've got a map and this shows pretty much the same area in a larger scale. It doesn't take us all the way down to the Black Sea. You can still see Kiev, and most of the things on this are kind of pink or yellowish blobs. But what this shows you is that around 1600, now we've jumped up 600 years. Oh my, what yeah. this shows isn't the Ukraine, and it doesn't show Russia. What it shows is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
So what had happened for some time is that in the later part of the Middle Ages, the Kingdom of Poland. Now, the Poles were also Slavs, but they're rather different. First of all, they became Roman Catholics as opposed to Eastern Orthodox. So that created a, a cultural divide between the two. And, you know, just to point it out for people, to, to the uninitiated, the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church and the Western Roman Catholic Church did not love each other and get along each claimed to be the only legitimate church, and therefore they bitterly quarreled and even warred with each other uh, and vied for territories to control. Didn't they actually kind of only uh, bury the hatchet figuratively in the last, like, ten years or so? I'm not even sure. No, they never buried the hatchet. I mean, they, 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 they've never to the extent of one recognizing the other as, as being I remember a, a photo, video, whatever, of, you know, the Pope and the head of the, the Orthodox Church meeting somewhere. Uh, he has a certain title, I, I can't remember. The, uh, the Patriarch. Patriarch, Patriarch, but, that, yeah. but there are, the problem is that there are a number of Orthodox Patriarchs. Ah, Okay. okay. At one point, there was, there was only one in Constantinople, but then eventually, the one of the differences is that the Roman Catholic Church always held itself apart from politics as long as it could. So there was the church, and then there were kings, princes, dukes, states, etc. Mm-hmm. But the pope was always separate from them. The church was always something that was not part of the the church might be support the state. It might support this king or another one, but it wasn't part of it. And and in particular, uh, popes were never subject to temporal rulers. The idea was that the pope is the vicar of Christ on earth and the representative of God was above all temporal rulers. So he, for instance, this is why he thought he could excommunicate a king or a prince. And the same was partly true for the patriarch in Constantinople. But the difference there was that under the traditions in the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, the patriarch was subservient to the emperor. Oh, Okay. This, it, you know, this, this takes us off in a whole different direction, but think of it this way. The Western Roman Empire collapsed, and there wasn't an emperor came into being and established its power without a Roman emperor able to tell it what to do. In the East, however, the Eastern Roman Empire doesn't fall until 1453. So it outlasts the Western Empire by a thousand years. Mm. And as long as there was an emperor, the emperor was not only head of the state, he also was control of the church. There's a term for this called Caesaropapism. Wow. Now that's the tradition that Russia and the East and the whole Orthodox East would inherit. That, that later becomes a very important, one of the things that, that the whole principle of czarist autocracy is built. This is, this is why the Russian czar mm. was, was not only the head of the state, but he was also the head of the church. And the patriarchs or the metropolitans, the, 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 the princes of the church, obeyed him. They, they recognized him as their overlord, whereas popes in the West, if they had any kind of power at all, never recognized any king or emperor as their overlord. And so, so they were supposed to be subject to them. So again, there's this very which, different sort of Which leads to very interesting perceptions of the world. Yeah. 
as to how the world ought to be run yeah, yeah. and where proper authority exists. Which, which so I'm, Eastern, what I'm trying to do is to begin yeah. to kind of shadow, you know, foreshadow the idea of Putin really believes a lot of the stuff he's saying. Well, maybe he does, but but it's a um, so you, you've got this this culture which develops in this area, and, and it's, it's a it's an ortho, a Christian Orthodox culture which is common to all of these areas. But one of the things that happens in to Kievan Rus is that uh, a couple of hundred years after that last map we saw, the whole thing just goes to hell. And what happens is that it, it breaks down, once again, uh, strong leaders essentially disappear. It breaks apart into small warring principalities. And these small principalities, busy fighting among themselves, then essentially end up dominated by larger powers around them. So the biggest one to come along are the Mongols. So the Mongols show up around 1240 and pretty much just burn everything. They burn Kiev to the ground, and they actually, most of the principalities that have been part of Kiev and Rus become subject principalities to the Mongol Khan. So, for instance, this, this would be true for the princes of Moscow, which has grown up as a major city in this period. And this meant that even to hold your title as prince for about 400 years in many of these, of these uh, we'll, we'll call it for lack of a better term, Russian domains, is that you had to make a pilgrimage to the nomadic capital of the Khan of the Golden Horde and swear your loyalty to him and to pay tribute. So one of the things that happened is that what would became, become Russia, what would become the principality of Moscow, which would become the center of the later Russian state, would spend about 300 years under very strong Mongol influence. And it would still re remain Slavic and Orthodox Christian, but it was, it, it's one of the, think of it this way, it was one of the few areas of what we tend to think of as Europe that for centuries was ruled by an Asiatic empire. Mm. On the other hand, what happened to the Another Western reason area, for differences in perception. Yeah. What happened to the Western areas, most of those areas that would become sort of, not all of Ukraine, but, the, the, but much of what is the Ukraine today, those areas fell into the domination of the Roman Catholic Poles and Lithuanians. So initially, Poland and Lithuania were two different states, and then, put it this way, a couple of people got married, and then they were one state. So there was a <laughs> dynastic union between them. Okay. But Poland-Lithuania, I mean, if you look at the, at the maximum size, it was huge. I mean, it, it covered a, a gigantic oh, yeah. area. Look at that map. And it controlled, Kiev became part of it. So much of what would later become Belarusia and also, but especially Ukraine, which is what we're talking about, would come under centuries of Polish-Lithuanian domination. Now, again, the Poles and the Lithuanians are not Ukrainians or Russians. The Lithuanians aren't even Slavs. But they're Roman Catholics, so again, they had a kind of a culture, but they dominated and ruled these areas for centuries. And one of the things that changed is that while most of the common people in these areas remained Orthodox Christians, much of the nobility became Catholic because, you know, you wanted to get along with the king in Warsaw uh, and therefore you would come. So there, there, was a, there was a kind of different religion 
and ethnicity that permeated the upper classes than, than the lower classes. And again, to give you a rough comparison, it's, it's similar, not exactly, but it's similar if you're talking about medieval England where you had Saxons and Normans. The Norman French were the lords, they were the elites, they spoke a different language, uh, had a different culture, and the common people were the Saxons. And eventually those two things sort of fuse into the English, but it takes a few hundred years for that to happen. So really, okay, where, Rick, what would be Rick, the, we are yeah. at the top of the hour. Right. It's amazing how time flies when you're lost in history. What, a, what an interesting enlightenment. I mean, I've learned a million things in the last uh, hour, just, just that. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're taking a deep dive into Russian and Ukrainian history. And as I promised, it's complicated. But at the end, hopefully, there will be enlightenment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Tchaikovsky in the background. We shall return. The site is midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, January 30th, 2022. My guest this morning is historian Richard Spence. We're talking about the origins of Russia, the origins of Ukraine, or if you prefer, the Ukraine. Learned a lot there. So, Richard, um, please continue. This, this, is, this is getting really intriguing. Okay. So remember, everything sort of started out as Kievan Rus, which was, you know, theoretically one religion, you know, not a grouping of, of peoples in which no distinct, there was no such thing as Russians or Ukrainians. That the concepts didn't even exist. 
Then what happens over the centuries that unfold between about the years 1000 up until the 17th century, up until the 1600s, is that the old Kievan Rus' eastern portion of the principalities, one of which was the principality of, which was of Moscow, would fall under Mongol domination, while the area to the west that would later we think of today as Ukraine would become a kind of border area of a large Polish-Lithuanian state. But keep in mind, in both those areas, you were essentially being politically dominated by outsiders. So not only were the Mongols Mongols, they were also Muslims. Um, and the, in the case of the Ukrainian area, you had the Orthodox Slavs who lived there were being ruled by Polish and Lithuanian Catholics. So what this does over centuries is it begins to create changes in language, changes in perception. This is when, uh, when you know, one of the ways that the Ukrainian language has been described today is midway between Polish and Russian, which I heard of, which I don't think is really an accurate way to describe it. It's the relationship between Ukrainian and Russian today, as they exist today, not as they existed 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, whatever they were, because they didn't; those languages weren't around at that time would probably be the closest way to describe it is that if Russian was German, Ukrainian is Dutch. Okay. That, I don't know if that makes much of, of, of sense to it, but, but Dutch and German, which are you know, quite similar, but they're not exactly the same. You, know, you might be able to read each other's newspapers, which you have to guess, but and, and understand part of what people were saying. The languages are very, very much the same. They have the same kind of roots. They have many of the same sounds and words. But over time, as languages tend to do, they've become two distinctly different languages, although still arguing a common origin in that case. But those are things that take place time. And it's, it's one of these things that I, I think is often hard for people to get their head around because we often tend to think that the, the past was just kind of like a more primitive version of the present and that all of the people that exist today, you know, that if, if we went back to the year 1000, well, there would be French and British and Germans and all those groups around. They were just organized differently. And, and actually, you wouldn't find those groups at all. You wouldn't go back... If you were able to go back to the year 1000, you wouldn't find people speaking German. You certainly wouldn't find people speaking English. You wouldn't find them speaking French or Italian as we know it. You would find them speaking earlier languages to which the, out of the, which the later ones evolved. And, and you wouldn't even find people thinking of themselves in, in that way. So it's one of those things is the whole concept of a national identity is really something fairly recent. It's one of those things that only really kind of comes in, you know, I could say it begins really sort of in the more, I'd say from the 17th century on is, is when those kind of concepts come in. And then when you get to ideas over exactly what an Italian is or what a German is or what a Russian or Ukrainian is, you're talking about the 19th century. Mm. So I'll give you an example from a, from a different place to give you an idea. So one of the things that happened in Italy in the 1800s, keep in mind, in 1860 to 1870, 
is that a whole collection of small states in Italy, everything from the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies to the Kingdom of Savoy to the Duchy of Parma to the Papal States, all those areas became unified into the Kingdom of Italy. And then, of course, once you've created the Kingdom of Italy, you have now created Italians. Mm-hmm. Okay. Prior to that, Italian was just a term that referred to anybody, any of people speaking a lot of different dialects who lived in the Italian peninsula. It referred to Venetians and Genovese. I mean, if you go back and look in the period of Columbus, you'll find out that you know the Venetians were Venetians. They didn't. They were never referred to themselves as Italians. Um, Sicilians were Sicilians, and now all of these, through some sort of political action, usually a war we're now unified into something called the Kingdom of Italy. And one of the big questions became, well, okay, we have to now establish an official Italian language. So the the language that was spoken by people in Milan in the north was very, very different, almost unintelligible from the Italian that was spoken in Sicily hmm. in the south. Anyway, still is. I mean, there were very, there were great differences between them, and and, and the culture was different. The food was different. It, you know, the, these these are areas that had never been brought in before. So the idea is that okay, well, what's what's standard Italian going to be? What are we going to teach all the kids in the government schools now to turn them into good little Italians? Well, the idea there was pretty simple. We'll pick. We'll sort of draw a line through the middle of the Italian boot, which coincidentally enough is pretty close to. Rome, mm-hmm. the capital, um, and and we'll say that the dialects from there that though that that is standard Italian, and that will now become the basis for a single unified national language. And the idea then was that we'll create schools and we'll make the kids go to them and we'll have everybody speak one language, which worked to some degree. Although if you go to Italy today, Italian in the South is still very different than the Italian in the North. In the same way that if you go to Germany, the German in the South is different than the German in the North. And it was the same there. German, there there was no such thing as a German, as as a political identity, as a nationality. There was no German nationality until 1871. Prior to that, there had been Prussians, Bavarians, Württembergers, Hanoverians, a whole variety of others. At one point, there had been 300 different German states. There had never in the entire history of the world until 1871 been a political identity called German until the German Empire was created. And then everybody was sort of mass baptized as German. So those are fairly simple types of things. So what you had is, and part of much of it had to do was the, the kind of influences that that came from different areas. So, for instance, people in Western Germany had a lot of cultural, had centuries of cultural interaction with the French. So, one of the things that you would have found was that most of the aristocracy in Western Germany spoke French because that was considered to be a more advanced language of culture and German was what so in the same way under centuries of rule by the Poles and the Lithuanians most of the aristocracy in what would later become Ukraine and much of Western Russia the areas ruled by that big state became uh, what was the term became Polonized. That is, they often would change the spellings of their names, but but you would have almost different different nationalities 
running the country as opposed to the people who were working the fields. So this is the biggest element, I think, in, in shaping what would eventually be the difference between Russians and Ukrainians, people who were born out of the single egg of Kiev and Rus, with the centuries of different political rule and contact. Now, for the Polish kings during much of this period, during Poland's heyday, which sort of peaked in the, in the 1600s, Ukraine, again, didn't describe a country, and it didn't describe a people. It just described, again, the borderlands, because they were still fighting that same war out there against nomads on the wild plains. And the main ones that they were dealing with, besides the Ottoman Turks, is that the Crimea. Here we come to the Crimea. Ah, On all these maps, Crimea is this, like, you know, little sort of... um, you know, it's kind of a diamond-shaped, hanging-down peninsula, almost an island, you know, barely connected to that. And what had happened is that at some point in the Middle Ages, another group of, uh, of uh, nomads had come in, the Tatars, or Tartars, if you prefer. They were, they were sort of vassals of the Mongols. And they settled in the Crimea, and they became the Crimean Tatars. And they turned Crimea into what was for some centuries referred to as the hornet's nest. And by that, it meant that the Crimean Tatars lived the way that nomadic Tatars did, which was, you know, they farmed, but they also raided. And they raided into the areas into the north. They raided into the Polish territories. They would later raid into the Russian territories. And they did that, again, right up to about the period of the American Revolution. And and this and they and they again kept this whole wild plains. So again, there was no the Poles and Lithuanians never really consolidated. You know, the, the line would shift back and forth. There was constant warfare. Uh, another group that becomes involved in this is that on the in these borderlands, right along the border, right on the front lines against the hornets' nests and the 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 Tatars, Cossacks appear. And, you know, I don't know how I can explain Cossacks. Uh, (laughs) Cossacks, again, are sort of like (laughs) Vikings. Cossacks are not a nationality. They're a lifestyle. What what they actually consisted of is that they were – Cossacks lived like Tatars. Oh, they're kind of like the the Russian-French Foreign Legion. Well, no. They're they're basically Slavs that went Tatar. I mean, they they adopted a kind of – they adopted much of the, you know, they, they rode horses and they raided. So they were, one, one description is that the Cossacks were largely descended from serfs who ran away to the border. See, one of the things about the border areas is that it was fairly lawless. So one of the things that was happening in many of these territories under both Polish and under Muscovite rule was that serfdom was creeping in. And serfdom was basically the enslavement of the peasantry. Mm. And, you know, you, you had to work for your landlord, you know, five days a week. Uh, you didn't own your land. You couldn't leave his employ. Uh, eventually that ends up with you and your children being bought and sold. But that, again, was a kind of gradual process. But it meant that if you wanted to escape from that, and the people most likely to escape were young men, you'd run off to the wild plains, you run off to this area that was unsettled and, you know, it's like running off to, to the Wild West somewhere. Think of it that way. It's, this, it's a frontier. Uh, it, it's this kind of wild, unsettled frontier. And so these communities developed along there of 
Orthodox Christian Slavs, but they adopted much of the lifestyle and many of the habits of the nomads that lived on the other side, even though they fought with those nomads. And these became the Cossacks, and they formed their own kinds of communities under their own military leaders, and they really didn't tip their hat to anybody. The Cossacks tended to be fiercely independent. So they hated the Tatars and would fight them at the, you know, at any time, but they also had no love for the Polish king or the Lithuanian Grand Duke or the Ottoman Sultan or anyone. So they become a kind of wild card in all of this. So the Cossacks by the 17th century have become a certain power as well. And and, and, and in what would later emerge as Ukraine, there was a particularly powerful group of Cossacks called the Zaporozhian Cossacks. And all that term means is that they were the Cossacks that lived beyond the rapids. (laughs) So the Dnieper River had had rapids. It had an area of rough water or rapids. And that meant, by the way, that if you were sending ships up or down the river, that's where you had to take them out and go around the rapids, which made it a kind of, as whoever controlled those rapids had a certain control over the trade. And that's one of the things the Cossacks did. So they, they sat on the other side of the rapids. But the Cossacks are this whole kind of wild card in the midst of it and pretty much are at war with everybody. Later on, Ukrainian nationalists will claim the Zaporozhian Cossacks as, as the true Ukrainians. So these are the first ones. And there's really, you know, there, there was no term that existed at that time. If you'd gone to the Zaporozhian Cossacks and talked about the Ukraine, all you'd have been talking about was the borderland, which they knew where that was. But there was no, their only consciousness of themselves was that they were these free sort of brotherhoods of Cossacks. But the Cossacks become important because they spearhead a huge, bloody rebellion against the Poles in the 17th century. In fact, the leader of this whole thing was a a Cossack by the name of Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Now, Bogdan Khmelnytsky today and later on will be turned into a Ukrainian national hero. That would have been a huge surprise to him at the time. Mm. But nevertheless, what he was leading is he he led this rebellion of the local peasants, sort of orthodox peasants, which swept over much of this Ukrainian area and it was a bloody rebellion in that you know they killed every pole they could get their hands on and also by the way they butchered every Jew they could find because they considered the Jews to be the servants of the poles. And then this this is why in Jewish history Bogdan Khmelnytsky becomes a kind of devil he became this thing to frighten children with later because of the horrible stories that people would say. So it's an interesting case of Khmelnytsky became later is turned into a hero by some and then turned into a villain by others. And if we have enough time this evening, we'll see that in the 20th century, there's another Ukrainian figure that will be considered and is today considered exactly the same way and for the same reasons. Hmm. So what happened is that in the midst of this rebellion, Khmelnytsky is the leader of this rebellion against the Poles. He's looking for you know, any kind of military help he can get. And by this time, the, what was then called Muscovy, what would later become Russia, what was still largely called Muscovy, because its capital was Moscow, had become, had become the most power, had freed itself from Mongol control, had defeated the goal, and had begun to expand. 
This, this is the state that was, you know, if you think of Ivan the Terrible, Ivan the Terrible was one of the early founders of the Muscovite state. And so Muscovy had begun to regather what they called the gathering of Russian lands, which meant the reconquest of all of these areas that had been part of Kievan Rus. So you see the rulers in Moscow, having freed themselves of the Mongols, then thought, you know, their idea was that their historical mission was to liberate the other orthodox sort of Russian people that lived, that had been part of Kievan Rus before, you know, back when we had all been part of one thing. It's our kind of holy mission to regain the, that territory. That is, that, there's a, that there is this cultural and religious and bond between those areas. We're all part of the same thing. Khmelnytsky went to the Muscovites, depending upon whose version of things you want to take. Now, this is where <laughs> things get interesting. Later, the Muscovite version with Khmelnytsky said that if you, you know, if you give me military aid to fight the Poles, I will recognize you, the rulers of Moscow, the czars, as the lords of this territory. I will, will, will return to you. I, we'll, we'll, come, we'll have a union with them. Now, others, particularly on the modern Ukrainian side, no, no, said, no, no, that never happened. You know, that, that the Muscovites offered aid and then came in and betrayed Khmelnytsky. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, I think, was probably something of both. But what happened at that point is that the Polish state began, from the 17th century on, began to collapse, began to disintegrate, as all states do. They began to fall apart. And by the end of the 1700s, Poland would completely disappear from the map of Europe. Most of its territory, including what would be later known as Ukraine, was taken over by the rulers of Muscovy, of the new emerging Russian Empire. Now, there were different, you know, there were, there were some uh, Ukrainian Cossack leaders. There was a Ukrainian Cossack leader around 1700, a fellow by the name of Ivan Mazepa, who, deciding that he didn't want to be ruled from Moscow, tried to make an alliance with the king of Sweden, who was busy invading oh Russia my. at that point. Yes, hmm. that, that's... See, there's a guy by the name of Charles XII of Sweden. He was the... Uh, he was very ambitious and very successful for a time, and he, he actually conquered Poland, uh, and he, the Swedish army marched into Ukraine, and his idea was that he was actually going to conquer Russia, and you kind of know how that turns out, right? Mm. People who tried to conquer Russia, and, and it ended horribly, partly, partly, in part because Mazepa promised Charles that if you march the Swedish army into Ukraine and winter over there, I can raise 100,000 Cossacks to join you in the spring. Well, guess what? That never happened. And in 1709, the Swedish army, which had spent a very cold, miserable, terrible winter, uh, was defeated by Peter the Great's army at the Battle of Poltava. That kind of sounds like history rhyming. Yeah. So that essentially is that by the time we get to the early 1700s, the, air, the territory that would later be known as Ukraine is now been brought back under the rule of the Muscovite czarist imperial state. So, and keep in mind, this is, this is part of this Byzantine heritage. Czar is the Russianization of the term Caesar. Uh-huh. 
That's what that means. So and this, this is because the Russian czars viewed themselves quite literally as the Caesars, as the heirs to the whole Eastern Roman Empire. So, and actually the Western Roman Empire, too. Um, Boy, talk about a heritage of grandeur. Well, it's a type of thing that it's an interesting thing if you look at European history is that this split between the Eastern and the Roman empires continues in different forms. But keep in mind, the the acquisition of the title czar, which is first used by a Muscovite ruler really in the 15th century, uh, and then becomes commonplace later on, is is Caesar. They, they are claiming to be the Caesar of of the Eastern Empire. Mm. And what you have in Western Europe are a series of rulers who try to become the emperors of the West. So if you look at, for instance, if we move things up to Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, who remember in 1812 will famously invade Russia. Yep. If you stand back and look at that, what you're looking at, what had Napoleon crowned himself? Emperor of the French. But he also sees himself as emperor of the West. I mean, look at the way, look at the statues and the portrayals of himself as a Roman emperor. What happened in 1812 is that it wasn't just Napoleon Bonaparte invading Russia. It was the emperor of the West going to war with the emperor of the East to reunify the Roman Empire. Uh Aha. Days of glory past. Yeah. So those terms are around. So now, you might say, what was the status of Ukraine under czarist rule? Uh, Well, right up until 1917, if you look at any map of czarist Russia and you look on it, you will never find the term Ukraine there anywhere. Because now the borderland had ceased to exist, because in addition to that, Tsarist Russia had also conquered the Crimea and crushed the Crimean Tatars and, and then had resettled the wild plains. But here's something that happened. So the U- Ukraine, Ukraina, the borderlands, was always defined an area to the north of the Black Sea to some distance, a kind of vague idea, but it never included the coastal areas. That wasn't part of it. So when those areas, basically under Catherine the Great in the late 1700s, again around the time of the American and French Revolution, are finally brought under Russian imperial control, they are not called Ukraine. Nothing is called Ukraine. They are called Novorossiya. They're called New Russia, and they are settled by peasants who were brought in not from the Ukrainian areas, but from central Russia. Now, that's one of the reasons why right up until today, if you go the further south you go in modern Ukraine, when you get down to the Crimea and when you get down to the coastal areas, that's where most of the population speaks Russian and sees themselves as Russians because that's what they're descended from. Their ancestors didn't come from Ukraine. Their ancestors were brought in from central Russia and settled there in the 18th century, fairly recently. And that, that and, still, and, 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 and that was Putin's claim when he took the Crimea back, what, in 2014, that they were yeah, really Russian. Because it, they are. 75% of the population sees itself as ethnically Russian. They're not, they never saw themselves. And the other thing is if you look at the maps I've got here, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying that the simple fact is, is that Crimea was never historically part of Ukraine until 1954. Oh, Okay, the only time when 
Crimea was administratively part of something called the Ukraine, was under Soviet rule, when Nikita Khrushchev, an ethnic Ukrainian, by the way, basically <laughs> donated it to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh-huh. So he took it and he attached it to it. But that's the only time. So if you go down, for instance, if you look at, here's a map, if you go down to my item number three, here's a map showing Ukraine uh, towards the end of World War I. That's, that's kind of the idea of what Ukraine was supposed to look like. You'll notice that it doesn't include Crimea. Um, that wasn't assumed to be a part of the political state at that point in time. It's, the point here is that, remember, the, the term itself, borderlands, a vague shifting term, and it, it never clearly, it never described a country. It just described a kind of area, a kind of generalized area. Now, as I said before, if, if you looked at a, a, a map of Tsarist Russia right up to 1917, you won't find the term Ukraine. What you would find is Malorussia, Little Russia. <laughs> so, for instance, in, in the census, in the Imperial Russian census, there was no there was no line listing for Ukrainian. You couldn't declare it because Ukraine didn't exist. What existed was an area that was called Little Russia to distinguish it from Great Russia, which was the area around Moscow. Uh, really, here not that the the other ones were great and little, but it had to do with the idea that they were a, a smaller subset of a larger group. That is, that Great Russians were kind of the majority group, and the Ukrainians were some sort of some sort of like country cousins in, in, in a way. And, and this, this is really where you begin to get this argument, and it, it, it began to really occur in the 19th century, in the 1800s, uh, even among Russian scholars, you know, imperial Russian scholars and intellectuals, some of which were, you know, say, ethnically Ukrainian, as to, as to what exactly that was. You know, it's like the question of trying to define exactly what a German or Italian was. So what is it exactly? Kind of speak the same language. So you get two different views. The, the Moscow-centered view was that there was no distinct, separate Ukrainian identity, that instead Ukraine or Little Russia was simply part of the greater patrimony of the old Kievan Rus and was simply a sub-variant of Russia. Now, on the other hand, you had a growing number of people from Ukraine who argued that, no, no, we're something entirely different. Yeah. Uh, The thing is... Rick, we're at the bottom of the hour. It's amazing how time flies. Amazing. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're doing this very interesting CAT scan of, uh, well, of Russian-Ukrainian history which is going to get a lot more relevant, as you're going to hear, for the next half hour. You're on the other side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And to the Russian National Anthem, we shall return.
the other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight for this Sunday, um, January 30th, 2022. We're doing this deep dive into the extraordinarily complicated, intertwining, ever-evolving, and um, shall we say, resolutely adhered to on many sides, complicated Russian-Ukrainian history, which, as you can tell, over the last hour or two has uh, ebbed and flowed and the region that is now in dispute that uh, uh, Putin is claiming as really, really Russian, as you can see, has been a kind of a no man's land or a no people's land for most of its existence, but with predilections from that uh, Lithuanian, Polish, Roman Catholic period, kind of toward the West. So that that explains one of the mysteries that has been resident in my mind, which is why do the Ukrainians someday, somehow, some way want to join NATO? And why is Putin really dead set against it? Again, we'll get uh, into more details of that uh, interesting question as the morning goes on. Anyway, Rick, please pick up. This is, this is fascinating. Okay. So, um, I suppose if we go down to uh, let, let me just say a little bit more about the, the status of of Ukraine under the Tsarist Empire, which again lasts for centuries. If if you actually look at census returns in Tsarist Russia, they, they the main way in which they counted people and in the same category that both Russians and Ukrainians will use those terms would be thrown into was pravoslavni Orthodox. That's the way they counted them. So if you were an Orthodox Christian, you were one thing. The other thing is that you were is that you were all subjects of the Tsar. And and to the Tsar state, that was all that really mattered. So they categorized. Uh, they often counted people more by religion than by ethnicity. But mm. Pravoslavni Orthodox was the main thing, and the vast majority of Ukrainians and Russians were Orthodox, and therefore in the eyes of the Tsarist state, they were the same thing in the way that they were also equally subjects of the Tsar. Now, there were, by the late 19th century, there were in different universities, especially in Kiev, where there was a university, there was a, a small but influential group of, that term, 
intellectuals, you know, overeducated people who got ideas. <laughs> so, oh, you got to watch them. Nah, you take, you know, you give human beings a certain amount of education, and then they start, you know, they, they just kind of run with it. So one of the things that this began to create in some of the, let's say, educated centers in Ukraine and elsewhere was this concept of a Ukrainian national identity. Now, keep in mind, that wasn't something that had really clearly, you know, again, there will be people who claim that that Cossack I talked about in the 17th century, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, was a Ukrainian nationalist. He wouldn't have known what the term meant. Okay, that, that, was, that was simply wasn't an operative term at the time. He was a Cossack, and he was rebelling against the Polish pans and the, and the overlords. Uh, that, that was his sort of world. But now, remember, in a world in which Italy became a country and Germany became a country and in which most Europeans began to think of themselves as German or French or Italian or Serbian, all of these countries coming into being, the idea among these circles is that, well, we are something and we are something different. We, we, we are, we're Ukrainians. We have this particular area. I mean, that, that's the term. You know, really what you're calling yourself are borderlanders. Mm-hmm. even though that, that borderland has, has ceased to exist. But that we, we have, and it was true, that the language was different, there were cultural differences, there were a lot of similarities, but what we'll emphasize are the differences. It should also be said that there were also Ukrainian intellectuals who took the opposite side and argued that, no, we are closer to Russia than we are to anything else, and therefore there is a bond between us. Now, just to throw another monkey wrench into this, is that with all the wars and border changes that had taken place over the centuries, part of the far western part of what would be Ukraine was not under Russian rule. It was under the rule of the Habsburg Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was called Galicia. Oh, Here again, Galicia, there are no people who live in Galicia who are Galicians. <laughs> the people who live in Galicia are Ukrainians, Poles, and Jews, who all were quite separate from each other. And I know I'm going to ask they, a boring question, but what does the term Galician mean? Well, it comes from one of the old principalities that existed all the way back to one of those principalities that composed... Kievan Rus, back in the year 1000, was the principality of Halic, which was the main city, or Halicina. And that's what eventually was Germanized into Uh, Galician and then Anglicized into Galicia. So it took its name from one of the old Kievan principalities. So it looked back to its ancient, ancient roots. Yeah, although by this time it had simply began, began, it was simply the name of a territory that didn't correspond to the people who lived there. Ah, okay. So, and it was ruled by the Habsburgs, whose capital was in Vienna. But, but the most of the people who lived in eastern Galicia, right up next to the Russian little Russia, um, the Russian's little Russia, that, near Ukraine, uh, the people spoke the same language pretty much on both sides of that, and and to the to the nationalist intellectuals, they were all Ukrainians. But there was another twist here. In this Austrian Ukraine, in Galicia, there had also been a religious change, and one of the things that had happened, for reasons I will not attempt to explain, <laughs> is that 
many of the Orthodox Christians there, or their leaders, had around, in, in again, in the 18th century, had become what were called Greek Catholics. You've heard that term before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, Greek Orthodox. Okay. Well, well, Greek Orthodox are Greek Orthodox. Greek Catholics are essentially, are not really Greek at all. <laughs> okay, they're not Greeks. Even though I've just called them Greek so what it what it means is that they were Orthodox Christians who recognized the authority of the Pope, turned were granted the right by the Catholic Church to continue to use their language and customs. Hmm. So a large part under since the Habsburgs were Catholics, a large part of the Orthodox Ukrainian population in Galicia recognized the papacy and therefore formed a separate church a, you know who practiced orthodox rites but recognized that and this became and one of the things it did is that the Habsburgs sort of encouraged Ukrainian nationalism because they didn't figure it was too much of a threat to their empire I mean what they did was they put their finger up and they sort of somewhere when the wind was blowing and they go well look Russia is our enemy, as they were in World War One, and, and therefore there are a lot more of these uh, Ukrainian ethnics in the Russian side of it. So if, if we encourage the idea of Ukrainian separatism, that will do more harm to the Russian Empire than it will to us. And so and the, the first sort of armed Ukraine, the first military unit to actually bear the term, as so far as I know, Ukrainian, was the Ukrainian Legion which was recruited as a subunit of the Austro-Hungarian army at the beginning of World War I. Hmm. These are the first guys to think that they were actually fighting as Ukrainians, although they were essentially fighting just as a subset of the Austrians against the Russians in the Greater War. But then you know what happens. The Austro-Hungarian Empire by the end of World War I collapses and disintegrates, so Galicia is cut free. But then also the Tsarist Empire collapses in revolution. So that brings us to this map, the next one down, which is titled Ukraine, March-November 1918, German Occupation and the Hetmanate. What? Well, if you look at this map, you'll see that in the middle is this brown area labeled Ukraine. And then if you look over to the east, you'll see that there's a kind of red area, which is labeled Soviet Ukraine, next to Soviet Russia. And then over here in Austro-Hungary, you, you'll see this town called Lemberg and the area around it. That's Galicia, which was actually a separate thing called the West Ukrainian People's Republic. Hmm. So what happened was this. Um, when the Tsar was overthrown in March 1917, the Ukrainian intellectuals, the sort of Ukrainian <laughs> nationally aware elite, demanded autonomy. For Ukraine without really clearly defining exactly what that was going to be and and the new provisional government feeling kind of weak so on, granted them not independence autonomy and this was the first thing that they argued that this is the first real recognition within Russia that there were actually Ukrainians in this case might be added that the provisional government did that begrudgingly but nevertheless they did it then when the Bolsheviks came along, of course, they argued is that they were all about liberating the working class and that ethnic differences were just, you know, silly and, and that therefore they're not going to make any kind of concessions to that at all. Uh, and shortly after the 
the October Revolution in 1917, when the Bolsheviks take over St. Petersburg and, and Moscow, uh, there is a, a group of people, guys who pretty much could all sit around the same table together, proclaimed themselves a Ukrainian government and declared Ukrainian independence in January 1918. Hmm. And then that set off a Bolshevik invasion that reoccupied Kiev and chased this government out. And they went to the Germans, who, of course, are still at war, trying to negotiate a peace with the Bolsheviks, and say, please help us, help us, and we'll give you lots of grain, uh, and we'll align ourselves with Germany and uh, you know, against, against the mean Bolshevik Muscovites. And the Germans go, okay. Uh, and then they come in and force the Bolsheviks to sign a treaty called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which hands over the whole of the Ukraine to German and Austrian occupation. So the Germans come in, occupy the whole place, loot it six ways from Sunday, mm -hmm. reinstall a puppet Ukrainian government. But when that doesn't really, when they, you know, when that gets a little too uppity, they overthrow it and put a military strongman in control who lets the Germans do whatever they want. So here's the question. This was the first time the Ukrainians turned to the West and that's what they got for it. So you've now got this stray renegade government calling itself the Ukrainian Directory running around claiming to be the real government of the Ukraine, even though they've never contained it. You've got another government which says it's the government of the West Ukrainian Republic, which finds itself reconquered by who? The Poles. Mm -hmm. Because Poland has reappeared on the map, <laughs> and they argue that, no, Galicia belongs to us, and we don't care about you, so we're taking that over. So they crush that and annex that territory. The Germans really control the Ukraine until they quit in November 1918, when the Germans, you know, sign uh, the, the armistice and pull their troops out of the Ukraine, and then leave it to the tender mercies of the Bolsheviks, who reinvade and take Kiev again, and then of the white Russians, who were fighting the Bolsheviks, but refused to recognize Ukrainian independence, and the Ukrainian nationalists, who are still running around with some units. And one of the best ways I can put it is that I think between 1918 and 1920, Kiev changes hands 19 times. Oh, my God. Oh, my, my, my. So if you were living there in that period, who's in control? Okay, sometimes well, what, the Germans are control. What, what day is it? Etnon. Yeah, what day is it? Whose flag is flying? <laughs> Wow. So it, it's a very so there, there's a kind of Ukrainian state, but there's never really a Ukrainian. I mean, there's never a government that ever actually consolidates and controls the Ukraine for any real period of time on its own volition. It either does it as a puppet of the Germans, to, or, or so the, it oh, really is viewed by everybody as a borderland to be controlled in someone else's interest, not on behalf of the people who live there. Yes, and that's one of the things to keep in mind. Always beware foreigners who offer you help. Ah, Greeks bearing no, this, this, Galicia. Well, this this is one of this again is one of these rules. If you have to go to any sort of foreign power and ask them to help, you know, like I've been chased out of my country, or my government's been overthrown by the mean people to the east. Won't you come and help me? Mm -hmm. Well, what you've just admitted to the people you're asking for help is that you're too weak to maintain control yourself. And they'll never give it back to you. I mean, they'll help. They'll help themselves in that regard. Hmm. So always be very careful 
who you go to in a situation of weakness and ask to help you. Because if you imagine... Well, but wait, 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 wait. That that is not a hard and fast rule because look at uh, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty between all the states of NATO, including the United States. The only time it was ever activated in all its history, going back to the you know, end of World War II, was for 9-11. And it was the Europeans who came to our rescue, quote, as part of the treaty obligation. So that rule is not really well, a but rule. We, we weren't, we were, there wasn't, no, the, we, the United States wasn't prostrate and, and asking them to come and help. There weren't European troops who came no, it was No, it was by treaty and law that they would come, any of those states will help any of the other states part of, part of NATO. And that's, I think, yes. what Ukraine, some of the Ukrainians now want, leaping ahead in the story, they want right. that kind of protection from Russia to be part of a situation where Article 5, if someone invades, goes into effect. Right. For those, for those who fear Moscow, that's what they want. They want to be, but notice what that means is that what they want to do is to become part of what is and what always has been, and the only reasons for its existence is a military anti-Russian alliance. In essence, yes. Yes, that's the only reason. Well, it Putin exists. has kind of demonstrated why that's useful, beginning but, with but Georgia and then the Crimea, and now what he's doing currently. Do you remember how freaked out the United States got? When the Soviets put missiles in Cuba? Of course. I lived right. through it. Because, and so did I. And that was because, how can they do that? How can they possibly, because Cuba was a sovereign country, and it invited the Russians to put those missiles there. In the same way that we have been invited by Turkey, a sovereign country, a NATO member, to put nuclear missiles on their territory. Now, the point was, is that the Soviet Russians didn't like that, and there's no reason why they did. And the reason why they – so it's – and there's no reason why Putin or any Russian ruler with any sense of national sense at all would ever want to have see an anti-Russian alliance, an alliance that exists for the sole reason of opposing and, as they see it, eventually attacking Russia – move closer to its borders. Yeah, well, see, that's the part that is in great contention, attacking. Anyway, please, please let's, let's get back on track because we don't have a lot of time. Yeah. It's amazing. So anyway, um, this, this becomes, uh, you know, it becomes a chaotic situation. So what eventually happens when this is over through the process of the Russian Civil War by the early 1920s, the short-lived, unsuccessful Ukrainian government um, – goes from, you know, they, they eventually turn to the Poles, okay, so when they have nothing else, in 1920, the fellow who was, there's a, there's a picture of him further down on the list, if you, you find towards the bottom of my items, there's a fellow by the name of Semyon Petlura, so Semyon Petlura was the closest thing, he was the kind of military political strongman who was the closest thing you had to a kind of Ukrainian leader during this chaotic period. Yeah, that's, that's your item number eight. Right. Uh, he subsequently assassinated of in course. exile in Paris. Um, and uh, what eventually happens in this case is that, uh, you know, he turns to the Poles, which he previously considered to be enemies, who had grabbed a part of Ukrainian territory, and says, you know, we'll, we'll let you have Galicia. We'll let you have all the Ukrainians there if you help us against the big bad Bolsheviks. And the Poles in 1920 do. The Polish army invades Ukraine 
and occupies Kiev for about a month until the Bolsheviks counterattack and the Soviet army takes it back and then there's a Polish-Soviet war. And then the Poles and the Bolsheviks set down, conclude a treaty which essentially partitions Ukraine between them. The Poles get to keep Galicia and other areas. They get millions of Ukrainians that are annexed into the Polish state uh, and to its tender mercies. And the rest of it is organized into the Soviet, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, a wholly owned subsidiary of the USSR. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, in the mean, so in the, in the 20s and 30s, in the interwar period, one of the things that happens is that what remains of the Ukrainian nationalist movement now become exiles, sort of mostly in Paris or in Germany. And they still maintain an organization. There's still a group called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. They still maintain military units. And they try to still try to get any foreign government they possibly can to assist them in regaining their homeland and establishing independence. They also have some great ideas for the future. So if you go down this to number is the, five... This is, this is in what, the 1920s? Yeah, 1920s, 30s, all the way up to World War II. Okay. But uh, one of the things that the more ambitious Ukrainian nationalists did. If you look at map number five, which is in Ukrainian, by the way, it says Mapa Ukraine. Uh, pink area shows if they'd had their druthers, this would be their idea of Ukraine. Okay. This, this would encompass a huge area of Poland, Russia, all the way out to the Caspian Sea, mm. even areas. This would be their ideal super Ukrainian state. And there's a little Crimea so, way down separated. Yeah, there's there's the Crimea. Crimea is part of it. The the much of the Caucasus, Chechnya is part of it, because this was all considered to be part of the the patrimony. One of the things about nationalists is they always have uh, rather grandiose ideas. There's always some greater version. How how now, big physically I, would this state have been? In you know comparative terms. Compared to the Ukraine today? Well, no, compared to other nations, other 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 countries. Well, Ukraine. You were talking about Ukraine being a small country. It's not. It's bigger than Germany and France. You mean currently? It, it, yes. It, yeah. Okay. Ukraine I'm, I'm, today I'm is, thinking is, of. I'm thinking of this map. The, the Ukrainian super state. Yeah. Uh, it looks like maybe well, the United States. It would be one of the larger countries in the world. I would imagine. Yeah. If you edit it all together, but I mean that's 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 a kind of pipe dream. That was their wish list, okay. But you know, if, if you could have, you know, if you could have your dream and annex all the territory you wanted to, then that would be the idea. But everybody tends to have these, these, uh, you know, let nationalists loose with a map. <laughs> so, I mean, you just have to look at the, you know, look up terms like Greater Romania, Greater Albania, Greater, okay, and it's always much larger than the place. So what you actually ended up with. In map six, the green area is the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. That is the Soviet Ukraine, which, again, does not include Crimea. And then the area over to the western, Galicia and other areas, in an area called Volinia, which is an area to the north, is controlled by Poland. And, in fact, the Poles systematically begin to colonize Volinia. They begin to try to Polonize that area. 
sort of turn it back at what it was to the 17th century, I suppose. So the Ukrainian SSR, that's the one which is under Stalin's control. That's where collectivism is in introduced in the 1930s. That's where a huge famine kills between four and five million people uh, in the same sort of period. Uh, which makes uh, a lot of them intensely anti-Soviet. And then World War II rolls along. So the Germans will invade the USSR in 1941, and they, of course, come in and, to some degree, posed, are greeted in many areas of the Western Ukraine as liberators. Mm. Because, you know, looking back on it, some people could remember 20 years before that, well, you know, German soldiers hadn't been that great, but generally we were better off under them than we were anyone else, including the Ukrainian nationalists. Mm -hmm. But with the Germans uh, aren't really inclined. They're, that's not their thing. They're, they're not coming in to liberate Ukraine. Instead, what they do is they organize this portion of it, again, not including Crimea, which the Germans annex for themselves, into what is called the Reichskommissariat Ukraine, uh, and that is put under German military occupation and exploitation. So that is what happens during World War II, except that you, the Germans do reluctantly make some deals with some of the Ukrainian nationalists abroad, in particular with a very controversial fellow down here further, item number nine, Stepan Bandera. Stepan Bandera is probably one of the most controversial historical figures in modern Ukraine. He was not born in Soviet or Russian Ukraine. He was born in Galicia. He was never a Ukrainian citizen or even a resident of it. Mm -hmm. He would live, and then he was lived in Poland. He was intensely anti-Polish and anti-Russian, but more anti-Polish than anti-Russian. And he nevertheless made himself leader of an organization called the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. So when the Germans came into Galicia in 1941 in their invasion of the USSR, he proclaimed himself uh, the leader of Ukrainian state, and he issued a manifesto of Ukrainian statehood. Basically, he declared independence. And he thought the Germans would like that, but they didn't. They arrested him and threw him in Sachsenhausen concentration camp. But then they decided, when the war started to go badly, that, you know, maybe having some of these Ukrainian nationalists help us raise troops among the Ukrainians to fight the Red Army would be a good idea. So they dusted him off and <laughs> sent him back in. And, and, he or, and he helped organize a thing called the Ukrainian Ins Insurgent Army, the UPA, the UPA. There actually were two branches of it. There, there was a branch that was led by him that was opposed by another branch led by a fellow by the name of Andre Melnik. So they were fighting each other, and they were fighting the Reds, and sometimes they would fight the Germans. But the other thing that Bandera and his Ukrainian insurgent army did was to massacre 70,000 Poles in Volhynia and Galicia. They slaughtered entire villages of people. Oh, and some Jews as well, but mostly they were after Poles. This deeply embittered the Poles to this day. This is one of the reasons why the Poles aren't all that crazy about Ukraine in some ways. Mm -hmm. And this was a fellow who in 2010, under, I think, who was the guy who was the Ukrainian president then? 
yes, it was under Viktor Yushchenko in 2010 who made Stepan Bandera a Ukrainian national hero. Uh, and then that was immediately reset. He, 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 you know, he's a very divisive figure. There are those who argue that he was a fascist, Nazi collaborating mass murderer, which is, you know, one description. And the other was that he was a uh, he was all of those things. I mean, that, that's to be so, fair. He was so, all of so, those so, things. So he tried to make him a Simon Bolivar of Ukraine. But, but he was all but he, at the same time, he was he was a Ukrainian patriot, even though he was never actually born in the Ukraine. So some people love Bandera. I've run across Ukrainians who just think that he's the greatest guy. He was like, well, OK, he was a psychopathic mass murderer, but still he was a hero. We are at the top right. of the hour. OK, it's amazing how time does fly. Absolutely amazing. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. And we're kind of working our way up now to the current situation. Stay tuned. It's going to get much more, hopefully, understandable very shortly. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. The other side of midnight, what we're trying to do is give some perspective to the rather startling headlines that are echoing around the planet right now about the potential imminent beginning of the greatest land war since World War II between Russia and Ukraine, starting with where the heck is Ukraine? My guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence, is one of the few people I know who can actually answer and has been doing so quite, quite uh, steadfastly over the last uh, couple hours. So, Rick, where does this take us from here? Well, uh, 
let's say the the attempt in World War II, like the attempt at the end of World War One, to create a, some kind of Ukrainian state, was an utter and complete failure. And again, in part because you know you ended up making a deal with <laughs> with the Germans, uh, and you know what happened to Nazi Germany. And it's it's one of this is one of these these issues I should you should probably touch upon here is that defenders of Bandera will argue that well yes he collaborated with the Nazis but he only did that because he had to because he was he was a patriot and therefore in order to achieve his idea of an independent Ukraine to free it from Russian communist rule he would make a deal with the Nazis. And that's, you know, they can't really deny that he did that. Uh, it should be noted that the Nazis never treated, always mistrusted him. Again, kept him in, you know, kept him on ice about half the time and only unleashed him when they thought that he could possibly be useful to them. And, and, you know, and I think that's a fair argument in some ways, but the question is, what on earth did he ever think he was going to get out of the Nazis? I mean, mm. you know, if you thought you were going to, had they won the war, let me put it this way, had they achieved their goal and Bandera's goal of destroying the Soviet Union, I cannot believe that for one moment he thought that they were ever going to turn around and put him in charge of Ukraine. That was not their plan. That was not part of General Plan Ost. Mm. The Nazis were very clear what was going to happen there, and it did not involve Stepan Bandera. Well, wait, wait, wait. Didn't, so, didn't, didn't, yeah. the, the, didn't the creator of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq in the same era have some of those same delusions? If he allied himself with the Nazis, he'd wind up with what now is modern-day Iraq? Uh, there, were, you know, there was a fellow – are you talking about Rashid Ali? Yeah, I think – I, I, Yeah, I, I think – Yeah, there, there was a – well, there was – So, again, in other words, thing. wasn't this the delusion right. of a lot of these – guys who wanted to become leaders of something and they wanted a big guy to help them yes and it, it's a common delusion the enemy of my enemy the enemy of my enemy is my friend that is my thing. friend you see but that's not it's the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy <laughs> <laughs> well in reality so it just hmm. depends upon you know it comes back to this question that you if you have to go to some other power and, and beg them to come and help you against an enemy that you can't contain you've, that you've essentially already been defeated by you've got to assume that these people are going to be just the most generous beings in the universe to turn around and give you what you want when they could just as easily keep it for themselves so I, I mean I think uh, let's put it there. I think history speaks for itself about Stepan Bandera. And in his own way, he was an authentic Ukrainian patriot. That much is true. But that idea led him to make decisions and compromises and deals that were in the long run even fatal to anything that he desired. His, 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 his attempts to achieve that end were totally unrealistic and even in many ways counterproductive. Nevertheless, he survived the war and he went into exile in West Germany and, and he continued by, with the help, by the way, of the British and the Americans in particular, what I'm talking about are MI6 and the CIA. He and his organization were kept alive, given money and trained and sent assassins and saboteurs back into the USSR. In other words, he now went from the Germans to the West 
were going to help him, and they were only going to help him to the degree to which he could irritate the Soviets. Uh, and he did irritate the Soviets, and therefore they caught one of his assassins, the fellow by the name of Bogdan Stashinsky, turned him, sent him back to Munich in 1959, and he assassinated Bandera ah. with a poison gun. <laughs> Classic Anybody who wants to read about that, I highly recommend a book uh, by a fellow by the name of Serhei Plohi. His name is P-L-O-K-H-Y, a Ukrainian, by the way, who wrote a book called The Man with the Poison Gun, a Cold War spy story. Didn't they do a uh, movie on that? They may have, but uh, it's, it uh, it's so a – uh, But it, it shows much of the – I mean there, there was a great deal of divisions within – the the movement itself. Um, so what you had is that you know Ukraine ended up back under uh, Soviet rule. Uh, there was continuing anti-Soviet guerrilla operations all the way up until 1949, which were suppressed with great brutality. And then peace was restored, and that continued until 1991, where, again, the USSR, as we've seen so many times this evening, collapsed, and Ukraine became an independent state. You mean you know, as part of the Soviet Socialist Republics that all became autonomous with the collapse of the Soviet Union of Soviet Socialist Republics on Christmas yeah. Day of '91. They all went their separate ways, of course, in the forms that they existed. So the Ukraine that became independent in 1991 was simply the former Soviet Socialist, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, yep. which now became the Republic of Ukraine. Didn't they, did, well, weren't, weren't they rather really important in the, in the empire, the Soviet empire, because they, for some reason, which you'll probably hopefully illuminate, were the keeper of the Soviets' nuclear weapons stockpile? There were a lot of stockpiles in the Ukraine, uh, most of which they were willing to sell back to the Russians because they needed money. Uh, I mean, it was a very important – I mean, it was – I mean, here's one of the things to consider. What it had been is that really, with other than sort of brief interruptions in World War One and World War Two, the territory that is Ukraine – borderland – has been a fully – economically integrated part of the Russian Empire, whether that was Tsarist or Soviet, for more than 200 years. So all of its infrastructure, every, you know, everything sort of fit into that. And that was, and it worked pretty well. I mean, it was, it was, it was a kind of logical co connection be between the two. That's why let me, today let, the let, Russian let, let pipelines ask, still pass through. Yeah. yeah, let me ask another diversionary question, which hopefully is not. There was a there was a period of a Russian famine, you know, like the Irish potato famine. There was a Russian famine, and there were competing theories of agriculture, and there were a lot of weird ideas from Stalin. When Ukraine became the American prairie, the incredible fertile breadbasket, how dependent was Soviet Russia on the breadbasket of Ukraine? Well... There's a lot of breadbaskets in Russia, so you, the, the territory that encompassed Ukraine was a very rich area, but it wasn't the whole area. So there's a, uh, you know, if you separated Ukraine, it, it's not like the rest of Russia is going to starve. Okay. But 
nevertheless, the you know the agricultural produce was was valuable, but more valuable than that were things like the manganese mines at Kriviroy. Um, hmm. There were and there were there were large hydroelectric dams along the Dnieper River that were that were all part of the of, of the Soviet grid, and that's sort of what I was talking about. I mean, everything from the road and the rail system and the electrical system, the grid and everything, all of that area was was linked together, and it basically still is. So one of the things is that today. Most of the Russian gas and oil that goes to supply Western Europe passes through Soviet-era pipelines in Ukraine, and Ukraine makes money from that. So merely by having this stuff cross their territory, they collect $3 billion a year. But this is very important. It does not originate in Ukraine. No, it does not originate there. But the reason why they pass Ukraine is that this was all – this was earlier – all part of the Soviet infrastructure, so that so the, the infrastructure itself. I mean, another example of that is the railway gauge. So one of the things that since Tsarist times that Russia has always had is a different railway gauge than the rest of Europe. Hmm. It's wider, which literally means that you have to put different, you know, it, the tracks are wider, so you have to have a, a wheel switch. So one of the things that Ukraine's railways are a part of this Soviet standard. So their railways are the the Russian gauge. Uh, the, the roads are built that way. Everything is sort of built along, along those lines. Hmm. And there's been not much updating of that. One of the things that Ukraine has suffered from since 1991 is that much of the old Soviet infrastructure simply remains intact and, and further decays. But it's one of the things that links them to Russia. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is that there are somewhere between three and five million Ukrainians that work or live in Russia and send that money back home. Okay. That would be a very interesting case situation in the case of a war because that would immediately, theoretically, it would turn all of those people into enemy aliens, which I'm not sure that's the way that they would be treated. But it suggests something about the relationship between the two. Millions of Ukrainians work in Russia because they can get better jobs or they can get jobs there that they can't get at home because economically Ukraine is a toilet. But isn't there a similar situation in eastern Ukraine where there are enclaves of Russians and and in fact Putin has sent troops now into that part in, in the second invasion? Um, in the in the Donbass and, yeah, and also yeah. the the coal mining and industrial region. Well, yeah. that's one of the, well, it goes back. Remember when I said earlier that back in the 18th century that the areas in the south along the coast in Crimea had been settled with people from central Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, that ethnic difference exists today. So if you go the further, basically, you go towards the Russian border the more Russian people become in Ukraine. So about a quarter of the population actively identifies as Russian, not Ukrainian. About another quarter of the population doesn't seem to be quite sure what they are. And then only about half the population in Ukraine seems to be pretty clear that they're Ukrainians and one of the ways you can look at it is you can you can draw a line 
that in, you can sort of split Ukraine into two areas, the north and the west versus the south and the east. Hmm. The south and the east tends to have either a majority or a large part of the population who tend to identify with Russia, who tend to see themselves as more Russians than Ukrainians. And those in the north and the west, and the further west you go, are more and more adamant that they are Ukrainians. But the country itself is split. And there are, so there, you know, there's a quarter of the population that doesn't see itself as Ukrainian at all. Uh, there are others that are somewhere in between. It, it's, and, and there are a lot of links between the two of them. It's, my basic estimate would be this, and I, I'm going to go on record now, and I could be wrong. I don't think there's going to be any war. Oh, I, I hope, think that's, you know, that's, from, as my, and I, I, as I my mother I used to say from your, war for a lot of reasons. Yeah, my mother used to say from your lips to God's ear, that kind of thing. So this is, this is mostly a lot of, People, it's the, it's the news doing its usual thing of trying to flog the latest potential. Well, let me let me let me let me let me push back a little bit because since Russia itself has an economy the size of New York State, people keep saying Italy. No, it's like you know, many U.S. states are more wealthy and have more diversity in industry and exports, et cetera, than than Russia. It must be well, costing Russia, i.e. Putin, a large amount of money to keep 130,000-plus troops in readiness, getting ready for an all-out shooting war, including blood banks, for months and months and months and months and months. If he doesn't get anything out of it, what does this do to the Russian economy? Or is it so stratified that people are just expecting that a huge chunk is going to go to the army and they don't care? Well, I mean, the, the whole comparison with the, the Russian GDP, the Russian GDP is about, you know, less than one-tenth of the U.S. Yeah, which, is, which hand, is on the order of 20, they also have, hang on, hang on, which is on the order of 20 trillion, so one-tenth is about two trillion. I have heard estimates based on, you know, independent observers that Putin himself controls something like two trillion dollars. Maybe, maybe not. But I think that those kind of economic statistics are misleading to the point of being meaningless. And because they really, don't and describe, they really don't describe the situation that exists. And you will explain, of course. I will explain. Um, well, I could use the example of Prussia. And this isn't the exact one. Prussia was the state that began. <laughs> oh, that immediately comes to everybody's mind. Yes, of course. Well, Prussia. Prussia was what Germany was actually created around. It, it was the largest of the German states in the 19th century. But what Prussia, you know, the best description of Prussia was that it wasn't a country. It wasn't a country with an army. It was an army with a country. Uh, Prussia had hmm. no particular. It didn't have a large population, and it didn't have any significant economy compared to France or other countries. And yet, Prussia was able to defeat France because it had a larger and more efficient army. Okay. And it, it did that simply because of, of a matter of organization and and focus. So here's one of the things you got to keep in mind if you so if you compare. You know, GDP or GNP, it looks like, well, Russia is basically nothing. But 
It has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. All right, so this, this is a, a, a state with, the, with a GDP the size of New York that has six to 7,000 nuclear weapons. Yeah, but they're not threatening Ukraine with nukes. They're threatening them with 130,000 troops. I can't imagine New York State well, being able to maintain the kind of an army, let alone what Russia totally has. Well, New, York, New York State doesn't have 147 million people. And everybody's talking about No, but it's 000. about money. It's not about people. Remember, technology makes people kind of superfluous it's your it's your leveraging with technology yes and and the russians are quite technologically adept we don't have any great technological edge over them okay which is almost as we, almost as, as large in other words another way you can put it is that uh in, in among russians the number of people between the ages of 24 and 35 the key demographic who hold university degrees is 58%. What's the percentage in the United States? Much less, I would say. 36%. Now, this isn't to show that Russia is superior or that they're doing anything. They do things differently. It is a competent, relatively well, or it may not be your idea, but if one thinks of it as some kind of, you know, primitive, you know, small state, that's not really what it is that you're dealing with here. It is, whether you like it or not, a major power. But Russia is shrinking, both in terms of population well, and in terms of money. It's decreasing, not increasing. So what is Putin's game? Let's, so let, are we. Let, let, let us get to the end game, okay? What is okay. Putin's gambit with doing this huge military visible from space thing on the border of well, Ukraine? Uh, let's, let's deal with some real numbers about the, the number of troops. So the basic estimate is that there are somewhere between 100 and 150,000 Soviet troops deployed within striking distance of the Ukrainian frontier. I've heard different estimates as to how that is estimated, whether that is 40 kilometers, 70 kilometers, or 200 kilometers. Normally, there are large numbers of Russian foreign forces deployed in those areas. So the question is, how different is the number of is that number of 100 or 150,000 Russian troops somewhere within striking distance of the Ukraine different than it was two years ago? I think words, the difference, what's, what's, Rick, I think the difference is... No, 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 no. How much is it exactly? Do you know? No. No? Then you don't know whether this is an increase of 10% but there has or been 20% a, or 5%. But there's been a qualitative change in that, yeah, you have Russian maneuvers all the time. Yeah. No. But now there are extensive blood banks for transfusions for troops in a casualty situation, which you there don't... There are always blood banks with military units. Not the, the scale. No, this is different. This uh, is what, different. Of what uh, scale compared to what? Two years how, ago. How is, the current, how is the current scale bigger than what would be... You'd first have to tell me what's the normal scale to tell me that this scale is larger. So you're I mean, saying this is, is all of somebody, somebody reports hang on, hang on. that there are massive blood banks with, with the Russian troops, and they, and they have no there's no basis for that. I think that's pure BS. Okay, I will find a source. Or let me let me let me give another name for it. I think it's propaganda. So why is Putin, if this is all propaganda, issuing ultimatums to NATO? and to the U.S. in these negotiations. Because he's, he doesn't want an anti-Russian alliance and the deployments of foreign troops on Russia's borders. Well, he's Why already would he? got it. 
Look at NATO now compared to NATO, what, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So why should, why should he want more? But the more is I mean, quantitatively more. The more is just on paper. You know, Ukraine is not going to have, you know, any troops to be in. I mean, does, does Putin well, really think that NATO is going to someday invade Russia? Yes. Yes. Why? He and millions of other Russians believe that because they look at history. Remember, you're dealing with it with people who have been invaded. And and from their standpoint, that always happens. I mean, their view is that NATO, anti-Russian alliance, and the reason that it exists, ultimately, is to wage war against Russia. And that the whole idea of militarizing the Ukraine, of bringing it into NATO, and then staging other troops there, is all part of an effort of attempting to surround and militarily stage for a future invasion. They, they view it now. Now, whether that is paranoid or not, that is the way that they would see it. Well, politics is perception. So if this is, again, remember I said earlier in the conversation that Putin right. had reasons to believe the things he believed, and you kind of equivocated, does he really believe it? I believe that Putin believes what you just said. But, the, but his belief is not reality. NATO is never going to invade Russia. Come on. An economy the size of New York State. 90% of the countries in NATO are 10 times, well, not 10, five times richer. What would be the advantage? But but what does Russia have? What does this large area that encompasses one-sixth of the world's land area contain? Well, you're thinking of the oil and gas. No, I'm not just thinking of oil and gas. I'm thinking of every mineral and natural resource on Earth in greater abundance than you can find anywhere else. And the Europeans have benefited much more by making deals with Russia than they have with invading Russia. I mean, Russia itself has huge Siberian stockpiles of amazing things, and they've never developed them economically. Putin, as head of the former Soviet Union, has not uh, reached out. Who was someone else who made a deal with, with Russia, made a deal with Stalin, which was very advantageous for him? Up until he didn't. I mean, 19, 1939, Adolf Hitler. You're talking Hitler, they, yeah, yeah. Right, in fact, made, made a non-aggression but pact. But Germany had declared, agreed. Hitler had declared he needed Lebensraum. Yes. The, but, but the, the, just, the Soviets it, were idiots to think that he would not have enviously, in that era, looked at Russia as land for Germans. The situation well, is he totally would. different he simply, now. He, he simply... He simply attacked earlier than they expected they would. But on the other hand, if the argument is that you know you're not going to go to war with someone that you're making a good deal of, Hitler had a great deal. He had a great deal, and he could have kept that going for some time. Okay, but he preemptively ended it. Take off the Russian glasses and put on okay. Western glasses. Is it realistic to expect NATO, which was set up as a defensive posture in opposition to the Warsaw Pact? And those thousands of tanks. No, 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 no. Which was formed first, NATO or the Warsaw Pact? Well, it, it, who, no, who cares? which was formed first? Remember, okay. the NATO Soviet was Union in... was expansive back then. That's why NATO was formed. Yeah. So, if you look at it through 21st century Western eyes, is there any chance on a snowball's, you know, melting on the sun side of Mercury that NATO is going to invade Russia? 
If they thought they could get away with it, why not? Why? why? They're so well, much richer. Well, here's one of the things in the long run. The, the Germans and most of Western Europe, but the Germans in particular, currently get about 40% of their gas and oil from Russia. Through pipelines so that come through Ukraine, by the way. Yes, but of course the Russian. There's you ever heard of this thing that this controversial called Nord Stream Two? Yes, which is okay. companion to Nord Stream One. Nord Stream Nord Two Stream... is not even an operation yet. It's just no, sitting but Nord there. Nord Stream Two completely cuts Ukraine out of the loop. Right. It goes through the Baltic Sea, yep, yep, which yep. means that from the Russian standpoint, you're gonna, not going to have to pay the Ukrainians to ship it across their territory. Needless to say, the Ukrainians aren't wild about that. But the other thing is that one of the things that the Germans and other Western Europeans are doing is that currently they're dependent on the Russians for about 40% of their energy. Mm. Because but for some, and mostly, they, it's, and mostly it's Germany, which for some insane reason has killed all their nuke program. Yes, and what Nuts. the French are doing, and so Merkel, they're, they're who shutting did it, down nuke plants and coal plants. Merkel, who did it, is, was a physicist. Which yes, I cannot imagine what she was thinking. Their dependent, their estimated dependence upon Russian gas and oil will go from forty percent to sixty-five percent. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Now, don't you think that that gives a potential incentive for invasion? Well, it gives an incentive for some kind of a really sweet deal. I mean, the world would not stand for a Western invasion of Russia. Just like they don't want Russia to invade Ukraine, they would not stand for a, a, a Europe in, in invading Russia. Who's going to stop them? Well, we what have, world is going to, we what have, world is going to stop we them? We have a major say in what Europe's doing vis-a-vis but, NATO. But, but if, the United, if, if NATO, including the United States, if NATO, which includes the United States, decided they wanted to invade Russia, which I don't think they will, but if they decided they wanted to do that, but on the what rest pretext? of the world isn't going to do anything about what, it. What, what pretext? You know, this is not the history you, you've been recounting, and we're now at the bottom of the hour, so let's... Yeah. Hold that pregnant pause. Talk about a, a stopping place. Hey, I, 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 I wanted to do this all evening. Just take a listen to this, okay? I'm not going to tell you where it's from. Just listen to this. And it's kind of the um, lawn of the evening.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Sunday night, Monday morning in January of 2022, trying to unravel what the heck is going on between Russia and Ukraine. I might point out that since World War II, the only European power that's invaded another power has been the Soviet Union. Well, not really, but the, the echoes of the Soviets, it was Vladimir Putin in 2008 invaded Georgia, in 2014 took Crimea, and now, based on all those satellite images of what's massed on the Ukrainian border, is threatening to do something very bad to Ukraine. So if you look at this as a confrontation between NATO and Russia, it's Russia which has been the aggressor in recent recorded history, not the NATO organization. What will happen in the next decade? Who knows? But the probability is it's not going to be NATO that invades the former Soviet Union. Anyway, Rick, we were in the middle of a really interesting uh, point when we had to break, so let us pick it up there. What is Putin's objective? What does he want? He doesn't want any more hostile states on Russia's border, any more than the U.S. wanted Soviet missiles in Cuba. Whoops, sorry, hit the wrong switch. Okay. 
okay, so is this the way to achieve it? Because what he's facing, if he does the unthinkable, and I'm praying that you're right. Uh, say what? Forget prayer. Why do you think, based from historical perspectives, that this is basically a, a kind of a Putin bluff and that a hot war will not break out? Well, one of the main things you need in, from, from the military standpoint, you always want to have surprise. There is the, any, any possibility of surprise <laughs> is now completely lost. If everyone's sitting around waiting every minute for you to invade, you've lost the element of surprise. Well, that's, right, what, that's, that's what satellites have done. They've, they've removed the element of surprise from any well, offensive invasions. Y- of you know what we had before we had satellites? Spies. Yes. All right. So human agents could give you, you know, not the details of reading license plates, but they could certainly feed you information about the buildup of forces in an area. But the other thing is that, one, is that he's lost all element of surprise. Uh, two, this is a poor time of year for a military operation. Uh, you do that in June. You don't do it in February. You mean, uh, you even, mean, even you mean because three. on those uh, planes, all that mud? There's the mud. I mean, you know, the Russians have dealt with mud for a long time, So, it, but it, it's not the optimum time to do it. it. It's a poor time to launch an operation. It has no element of surprise. Uh, and the other thing is that for all the talk of 130,000, uh, it's an insufficient force to guarantee success because the Ukrainians have 200,000. So oh, now that's Ukraine interesting. does have a significant military force. Now, and that's their estimate. That includes the regular military and the Ukrainian National Guard, plus, you know, the Nazi volunteer forces. But... I think that that's an overestimate. Wait, wait, wait. That the, what volunteer forces? The Nazi volunteer forces, the volunteer battalions, the ones that wear the Nazi regalia and see themselves as the heirs. Oh, the, those guys. Okay. At right. least, yes. And they are very numerous, and they don't represent, but they, they are, you know, they're tolerated. They're there. Uh, I mean, there's no real effort to suppress them. The one thing is that they certainly would fight. But... You have, I mean, they get a lot more press than they, they probably uh, need, but, you know, they, they serve their sort of purpose. The Ukrainian military is not small. It's quite numerous. In fact, it's one of the biggest armies in Europe. Um, it is probably not a particularly good army, but they don't lack for numbers. And so the actual this, so, size of it... So, so given that you have a military yeah. historical background, the West supplying them with these high-tech 21st century anti-tank weapons really then equalizes the playing field. Because oh, that, that's stuff off the scrap heap, Richard. And, and, and it's not enough of it to make any difference one way or the other. Those, those are token supplies of weapons. That, that wouldn't make any difference at all. Then how are the Ukrainians planning to stop the Russian tanks? Well, they have tanks of their own, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a limited number of anti-tank weapons are, are not going. It, it isn't going to have that much effect. Uh, that's like the Estonians sending a battery of older German artillery. I mean, that's those are sort of token gestures in one form or another. The Ukrainians 
don't lack for manpower. I mean, we're going back to that question, is, is Putin going to invade? So one, you don't have surprise. You don't have numerical superiority. You do have technological superiority, but still, uh, you, you don't have, and, and this is a, an actual Russian invasion would, to, to guarantee success, would have to be significantly larger than the number of troops reported in the area now. This is not a preparation for a massive invasion of Ukraine. Well, how many people, troops, did we use to take over Iraq? Uh, well, that's Iraq. We're not talking about Iraq. Ukraine isn't Iraq. It's a much larger area. Okay. I don't, I don't think those, those comparisons have any point. The point is that if, if there was a serious invasion being planned, there would be a much larger number of troops and it would be at a different time of the year, and it wouldn't be telegraphed. Okay, these are all important so mili- points. Mili- mili- militarily, none of it makes any sense. So your bet is Putin is bluffing? Well, I don't know whether he's bluffing. My bet is that there's not going to be a war. Okay. Now, so that's a bet. If, I if, could be wrong. Well... But all signs point to me that this is not – if it is, it's an extraordinarily ill-prepared one, which somehow I don't see them going into it that ill-prepared. Okay, if he were to do the unthinkable, if he were to invade, what would Putin and Russia get from that decision? What would, be, what would be the upside? Well, I mean, that's the other point. What are you going to get? Ukraine is pretty much uh, – you have, would have all the, the infrastructure that you would need to then. First of all, you're going to have to occupy the country and administer it. That, that's where the cost comes in. And then you immediately face a guerrilla anti-insurgency. Yeah, which you, you know, would, might be able to handle, probably would be able to handle, but that's going to be costly. I mean, let's put it this way. It, in the best case scenario, half the people in Ukraine would probably welcome the invasion, but the other half would bitterly oppose it because this is a deeply divided country. Mm-hmm. They, they wouldn't lack for internal support in some way. What Putin would want, I mean, what, what he wants, and I, I think this is what Russians want. I think, I think there's a mistake here to try to reduce this is all down to one guy, okay, because Vladimir Putin is not Stalin. He's not the czar. One of the things that's really pressing him, one of the things that he's being pushed by is the same thing that Biden is being pushed by here, is by congressional voices basically saying, you've got to do something, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. Notice, you know, Biden is responding to political pressure. Putin responds to political pressure because the real pressure for invading Ukraine, the whole war talk, is coming out of the Duma. It's coming out of members of his own party and of opposition parties, including the communists, who are now the most jingoist party in Russia, who are arguing that you're not doing enough to protect Russia. You're going to. And so part of it is, is responding to that. One of the commentaries from the West based on Putin's own writing. In fact, he wrote a 7,000-word paper, op-ed piece, whatever, that I've been trying to find for the last couple of days, where he basically lays out his vision. And I wanted to read it in his his own words. But from what I glean, Putin thinks personally that the worst moment in 
Russian history was Christmas Day 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. He ranks that above even, you know, uh, Hitler invading back in uh, World War II. And he wants to, at some level, reconstitute at least some elements of the former empire, the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire. And Ukraine is a very rich target to make part, because it's already, in his mind, already part of Russia, as you've laid out tonight with this very interesting history. Well, that's an argument that can be made. I mean, it's... So much of history or otherwise is, again, taking the few sort of facts or two particular points and then weaving a narrative around those, weaving it to them. So you can create a narrative which argues that Ukraine is and always has been an inseparable cultural part of a greater Russian patrimony, that that culturally, economically, and historically, it really belongs with Russia more than it belongs with Romania or with France or with Germany. And you can make a case for that. You can also make a case that Ukraine is a separate entity that over time has evolved away from Russia and wishes to have a separate identity of its own. It all depends what it is you want to believe. But those are just what people believe. It's, and it's how many people you can convince to go, to go along with that particular narrative. You, you can you can make a case for either one of them. In other words, and, and then, which is a way of saying that either one in some you know, works in the world. You can also make an argument that communism aside, aside from the political system. I mean, th- this is the argument I've heard made: is that the Soviet political system failed. But the USSR, as a political and economic entity, something which bound a number of regions together fairly successfully, made sense. And there was, with the collapse of the USSR, a short-lived, I think fairly half-hearted attempt made to create something called the Commonwealth of Independent States. And the idea was is that the former 15 constituent Soviet republics while becoming independent, would essentially merge together in a kind a kind of EU. Yeah, this was just before the Russian Federation. Yeah, but because it was more generally because it was more advantageous for the elites in each one of those republics run their own show to become big fish in little ponds. Um, that didn't happen. And, 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 and they had a logical reason for doing that. The idea was that the smaller republics assumed that if we stayed within the CIS, whoever controls the bigger Russian republic, which is overwhelmingly larger than any of the others, will, will still be subject to Moscow. So the only way that we can, you know, the only way that we can really kind of exploit the situation to our local elite's advantage is to become independent. fully independent. Yeah. Fully independent. Which... You know, works for some, and, but economically that may or may not make that, that much sense. I mean, you can make a pretty good case that Ukraine, again, because of the infrastructure and the tie, not just the cultural ties, but the practical ones, that it fits with Russia better than it does anywhere else. Do you remember I mean, back before the Iraq war when there were um, questions being asked, and, and uh, I'm trying to think who the 
uh, oh, who was the Secretary of Defense? Um, I can see him. I can't remember his name. Uh, under under un, under Bush. You don't remember him either, right? No. Okay. Anyway, he made the statement that when if we invaded Iraq, Donald Rumsfeld. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If if we invaded Iraq, we would be greeted as liberators. So you said a moment ago that half the Ukrainians would greet Russians as liberators. I've been seeing various news agencies with man on the street interviews of ethnic Russians in Ukraine who say the last thing they want is for Putin to invade. They do not want Russia to be, be taking them over. Now, I'm sure it, some people do feel that way. Well, I mean, it, I, I don't know. And the thing is, is that neither you or I can figure out that from man on the street interviews and news programs. They could all be pre-selected. We all know that. The point is, if you're trying yeah. to pick, you know, it's back to the history. How do you reconstruct history 2,000 years ago? Very, very difficult, with great difficulty. Yeah. So getting truth. Remember, the first casualty in any war or even build up to a war is truth. So yes. if you if you simply look at the recent history, Russia, i.e. Putin, has invaded three times in the last 20 years. No European states have done anything like that. And if you go oh, back no? to the Soviet Union... Oh, I mean, when NATO, when NATO in, in, in violation of its own charter, bombed Serbia and I'm, threatened and surrounded it with troops and threatened it with invasion, that, that, that wasn't – what was the basis for that? I'd have to go and look up the details, but it seemed to, okay. me, it seemed to me there were some reasons for – you know, well, it, it, it had to do with Kosovo, but neither one of those actually fell. The, the NATO's charter did not does not cover states that are outside of NATO, and so in direct well, violation of its own charter, it went it went to war with Serbia. Yeah, that's you, what you do when you bomb a country. When you bomb its capital, you go to war with it. So NATO has gone to war. It has used aggressive action, and I think it's quite capable. And I and I think the excuse, if you want to term it that has been aggression on the other side, and it was a counterforce. It was Right, in, and in the in, same way that reaction. Putin will argue, when you, when you say that he invaded Georgia, what his argument would be is that George, the Georgian government was attempting to thwart the independent desires of the North Ossetian people to independence. And they did. There's an area of Georgia which isn't Georgian, North Ossetia. It declared its independence. The Georgians sent in troops to crush that. And the Russians, through an agreement they had made by recognizing North Ossetia, came to their defense. So he would argue that we were resisting the aggression of the Georgian government against the North Ossetian people who ask us for help. Now, is that self-serving BS? It probably is, but it's no more self-serving BS than NATO gave in the case of Serbia and Kosovo. Well, but there's a, there's a, a movement now in Texas for secession, which, by well, the way, is kind of you know, being promulgated by a couple of senators from Texas. If, if Texas were to secede and then ask for help from Russia and Russia were to send troops, how do you think we would – in other words, this gets so mired in insanity yes. so quickly. It can be, but that's human beings for you. <laughs> okay, back to the odds on what Putin <laughs> – what is Putin ultimately going to gain 
except a lot a world of hurt and an, an, inv- an invasion would, would first of all it would be uh, a kind of a pr disaster uh it, it wouldn't help the situation you think? ukraine oh. ukraine is not you're not capturing any great economic prize um, there's nothing there. It's worth the cost of the of the invasion. Okay, overall. so we, we agree. We don't. What, what you want? What what he wants is Ukraine not aligned with potentially enemy states. I yeah, mean, nobody on, wants to see. We, nobody we, wants to see a hostile. Uh, a, a, we don't a, have a lot of time, so I got to cut to right. a couple of questions here. Sure. No one in their right mind, either in the West, certainly in the West, sees Ukraine joining NATO in the next ten years. And Why? But I mean, this is great. What do you What do you want? Because to they, NATO? they because they're they do not meet all the criteria for being a NATO member. Right. The only reason that you would want Ukraine in NATO is to piss off the Russians. That's it. But there's, there's not, no. But, there's but, a, again, we're back to politics being perception. Right. Ukraine okay. is not going to become part of NATO. NATO doesn't want Ukraine as part of NATO. There's a faction right. in Ukraine that wants to be part of NATO. Because of what you said an hour ago about weak states want stronger states to help them. The, the best option for Putin, and what I think it will eventually end up with, is that the rotten fruit will fall from the tree and to simply to install an independent but pro-Russian regime in Ukraine, which is basically what existed there for most of the 1990s and even part of the 2000s. Okay. A kind of client state, one that can do its own thing, can wallow in its own wallow, but which will not be a base for any kind of potentially hostile action, which will essentially be a neutralized buffer zone. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me, considering that that NATO and the West has really nothing to gain from the Ukraine and Russia has nothing so just just have the place be a buffer zone in between. And what most people in Ukraine want, I'm sure more than anything else, is just to be left alone, to go about, live their lives on a daily basis, have jobs and employment, raise their children. That's what most people are interested in. Yeah, of course. Okay. Last week, there was a meeting between um, our Secretary of State and the Russian Foreign Minister. And the Ministry of Russia wanted us to quantify on paper the Russian demands of NATO and the U.S. and the U.S. response. And um, uh, Blinken, our Secretary of State, did that in a letter that was transmitted, I think, early this week. And one of the little rays of hope, to go back to your bet that Putin is going to find an off-ramp, Lavrov said specifically there were elements in the U.S. proposal which were the foundation for potential negotiation. That, to me, was the one ray of light in this otherwise weird picture. Yeah. And that's probably the way it will go. Hmm. Okay. So, when you have confrontation in a nuclear age, remember... You just said it a moment ago. Russia is a major, if not the major, nuclear power. Who in their right mind would even contemplate the idea that somehow nuclear weapons would be involved, which brings up what you and I talked about off the air when I called you up and said, let's do this. 
there are some people other than me who are seeing eerie counterparts to the run-up to World War I, which was a mistake. It just, you know, remember, the guy in the sandwich shop. Wrong place, wrong time. If he'd been 30 seconds later, it wouldn't have happened. Or would it? Well, I mean, without the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, would Europe have probably have blundered itself into war? Mm-hmm. Likely. In part because there were people who wanted a war. There were people who wanted a war in all the major European countries, in Germany, in Russia, in France, and in Britain, because they saw that as a way, they often saw that their current situation was slipping, and they felt that a war would restore that, or that it was a way to gain a position, and the smaller countries also saw a war as a way of, of attaining their national goals. I mean, the simplest example of that was Serbia. Serbia on its own. Let's put it this way. You'd have to go back and look at a map. But Serbia on its own didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of ever defeating the Austro-Hungarian Empire in a one-on-one war. That would never happen. But they had these grand goals that they wanted to achieve. Only way that those goals could have been achieved was through a general European war that would draw in other greater powers that would destroy the Austro-Hungarian Empire for Serbia, which is basically what happened. Hmm. I mean, they got, I mean, it was at a terrible cost to Serbia, 20% of its population, but they got everything they wanted. They became Yugoslavia. See how that turned out. Okay, great background for my next question, which is who benefits if there's a war between Russia and Ukraine. Well, not the Ukrainians, nope. not really the Russians in this case. No. Nope. Uh, probably not the West. Who could nope. possibly? But well, think of it this way: Who could think of it? Who could benefit from a war between Western Eurasian and American powers? I think you're thinking China. And this is another thing to keep in mind. If there was a war between Russia and NATO, do you think the Chinese would stay out of it? Well, they, they, they can't. They would be on the side no. of Russia. Yes. So any war between NATO and Russia becomes a war between NATO and Russia and China. Yeah, but is it a war between NATO and Russia, or is it a war between... It's a war between the United States, Russia, and China, because part of NATO yeah. will be enthusiastic and part of it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I mean... Yeah, well, look at look at Germany. I, 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 I don't I don't really think the Germans, the French, and the Italians are into this. The British are because they're up for fighting anybody. <laughs> well, the British have some peculiar problems right now with uh, uh, Johnson that are totally, yes. you know, in terms of diversion, change the subject, change the page, change the channel. Hey, you know, Rick, we're out of time. That's it. Well, I just wonder if I could leave one last thought, it would be, do you think there possibly might be other things going on in this country and elsewhere, political crises, internal divisions, that maybe all of this war talk is an interesting distraction from? Well, I would think so, except a lot of it's originating from Europe, so I don't think it's domestic U.S. politics. And again, I'm looking at those satellite images and what Putin is doing on Ukraine's border and I say, what? What is his endgame? If he is, but you'd have to again to make to put those those images in context. You have to compare them to other images. Okay, for a future program. 
Hey, yeah. I want to thank you so much. You did exactly okay. what I hoped we would do. Um, okay. Be well in your snow in, in northern Idaho, and we will talk to you soon. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, folks, that's it for another week on the other side of midnight. Last night was historic. Think of the Australian Radio Astronomy Observatory detecting something 4,000 light years away. Next week, we're doing on um, Friday the experiment from Stonehenge and other environs. Saturday night, we'll tell you what we find preliminarily. And Sunday, well, that's a surprise. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight until morning. Good night, everyone.